Hey, Cloneheads, uh, before we get started uh, with the main bulk of the episode, wanted to uh, say thank you. I uh, wanted to do it on the top of the show. Uh, didn't, we should have done it really during the show, and I think we kind of did towards the end, but I wanted to uh, say thank you off the top for your listenership uh, as we begin to wind down Clone Saga Chronicles. Uh, this has been a, a joy for me. It's been a fun time. Uh, when Josh and I started this, we never anticipated being going for 10 years, but I also never anticipated getting the things we got, such as the Kane series and um, such as the six-issue miniseries with the real Clone Saga, quote-unquote, uh, a Ben Riley book that lasted 25 issues, uh, Ben Riley returning to Spider-Man in the main 616, um, having you know Ben Riley and everybody show up on uh, in, in other Dan Slot written books. I never anticipated any of that. I never anticipated getting omnibuses and trade paperbacks. Uh, all those things we never anticipated. And it's because I think of the fan base that really loves this story and has been vocal and ardent in getting this story collected. It's all because of you. Uh, Dan, or, excuse me, Joe Casada once said that uh, the most requested trade paperback was the Clone Saga, and they were able to do it in, uh, in about 12 trades between the 70s and uh, the 90s. So uh, it's an incredible amount of stuff. Uh, we've covered everything that's in the Clone Chaga trades uh, between the miniseries episodes and, um, you know, episodes that uh, the, of the main books. We've covered, every, as of this episode, we'll cover every book but two, or excuse me, but three that are in the Clone Saga trades. So literally the countdown is on. To cover all those books, uh, everything that I can think of, I could think of that was outside the Clone Saga books, we've already covered. I covered that in a solo effort. Um, so to to be sitting here right now in 2019, having covered as many books, and I'm going to add up the number of books that I've covered over these uh, episodes, and just to give you the astounding number of books we've covered, and to tell you uh, thank you again for your listening. Thank you again for your comments. Thank you again for your messages of encouragement. Um, it is my sincere hope that our next projects and our current projects are going to get back on track. Uh, it's my sincere hope that we get a little bit more regular in terms of our scheduling and in terms of our release dates. So that's kind of the big deal. But um, the beginning of the end is here. Um, by the end of this year, I, I fully anticipate that we will not only wrap this show up, but we're going to be wrapping up. Uh, clone, uh, uh, spectacular radio, um, meaning of the original three shows. Uh, the only one that will remain going ongoing is going to be Mayday Mondays, but I want to make more headway on that too. So uh, be, be sure to leave us emails at our respective emails, clonesiderchronicles.gmail.com, maydaymondays at gmail.com, spectacularradio at gmail.com. Uh, but also the, the phone number is not going to change. It's going to be 818-925-6631. That's 818-9-CLONE-1. If you want to be on the program, have your voice heard. If you have already left us a voicemail, fret not. We are going to cover your voicemail. I promise. If you want, if you got any questions or comments or concerns, leave us a voicemail. Also, go to iTunes and be sure to leave us a, uh, to be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and also uh, leave us some feedback. You can also rate our show on iTunes. Uh, again, thank you all for listening. If this is your first episode, we hope you enjoy it. Uh, we hope you enjoy going back and listening to all the older episodes. Hopefully you don't cringe at some of the uh, then-timely references we made, but um, hopefully you find enjoyment in all of our uh, perspective and our nostalgia for this era of Spider-Man. So with that, we'll begin the not-quite-penultimate episode of our 90s look back. 
Clone Saga Chronicles presents Revelations, Part 1 through 3. Next, here on Clone Saga Chronicles, the podcast. Powered by Spidey-Dude.com and the Spidey Dude Radio Network. Whoa, I don't think I even want to hear your story. All of you must hear the Scarlet Spider story. My name is Ben Riley. I'm related to this reality's Peter Parker. How? I'm his clone. Or maybe he's my clone. We're not sure. I'm the real Spider-Man. I don't know what kind of mind game this is, but I'm the real Spider-Man. The real Peter Parker. You see? I thought I was that clone. I tried to stay out of Peter's life by taking on a new identity. I dyed my hair and changed my name to Ben Riley. When I became a costume hero of the Scarlet Spider, it really made him angry. But the next big blow came from Dr. Kurt Connors. He discovered that, according to our genetic structures, it might be Peter who was the clone, not me. That news pushed Peter Parker over the edge. Now he hated me with a passion. This is starting to sound like a bad comic book plot. It gets worse. Why didn't you just tell me I was a clone? The cloning process has proven unstable. You're coming apart. Welcome back, Holdheads, to the penultimate 90s look back episode. That's right. We finally made it. Revelations. This episode, we're going to be covering the first three chapters of the Revelation saga. And joining me, as always, is the guy that's in the room next to me, named Gerard Delatour II. Is this actually the penultimate episode? Because I thought we were doing two more after this. Well, like, like of the 90s look back. It's the penultimate of the 90s look back. Well, no, because we're doing 75 as an episode, and then we're doing 101 Ways to End the Clone Saga, and a couple other ones as a different episode, remember? <laughs> you don't even remember your own plans. Okay, okay, uh, like, all right, this is the <laughs> we're this gonna, is part one of Revelation. here forever. You'll never leave. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this is the first parts of Revelations. We have Gerard Del II the second, the host of Mating Mondays. Yes. And we got Greg Mashansky, the host of Spectacular Radio. So good. And then we got uh, Donovan Morgan Grant, the co-host, one of the co-hosts of Amazing Spider-Man Classics, and questions we don't have answers. <laughs> you can hear me in two different timelines. Exactly. And uh, last but not least, the co-founder of the show, uh, the man that used to do all the recaps by himself when we first started this show. Mr. Joshua Labbertoni. Yes, we started the show when I was a young, innocent man. Now I'm an older, more guilty man. Guilty! 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 Uh, just kidding. I was always guilty. <laughs> so this episode, like I mentioned, we're going to be covering three issues. Spectacular Spider-Man number 240, Sensational Spider-Man number 11, and Amazing Spider-Man number 418. So, right off the top... Uh, we did have a voicemail, but I'm not gonna. We're gonna we'll play it later. Um, so <laughs> forget uh, them. Um, we we're gonna start. So our first recap is gonna be with Joshua Labbertoni. Josh. All right. So we begin with Seaward Trainer. He is finishing the enhancements for Gaunt, who we still know who he is. When a shadowy figure, one of the last shadowy figures that we will ever see in the Clone Saga, shows up, and Seaward's like you. 
And that's all I will say, not your name or anything else like that, you know, nothing too descriptive, you know, but <laughs> now that I know the truth, I must tell Peter and Ben as opposed to before when I also knew that evil people were behind this. Uh, so meanwhile, we uh, cut to Peter and Mary Jane, who, you know, like the beginning of every movie before a tragedy when like the characters talk about how great everything is like, you know. I mean, Peter and Mary Jane are basically doing the Emma Stone uh-huh. graduation speech Big from time. Amazing Spider-Man 2. <laughs> like, oh, I'm so happy. We love each other so much, and we're having a baby. Like, we're so married. <laughs> and we always will be. <laughs> Nothing will ever break us apart. Yeah, like, it's, it's, it's basically like setting up for tragedy porn, like, right there, that whole scene. So... Mary Jane, you know, goes off on the bus and don't worry, you know, the next time she and Peter will see each other, it will be under very happy circumstances. I promise, guys. Just remember get when I remember when I said I was <laughs> and then um <laughs> so then Peter and Ben have a conversation that indic that does not indicate in any way, shape, or form that one of them is going to die. Like, Ben, I just want you to know that I'm so happy that we're brothers. Oh, I'm happy that we're brothers too, Pete. Yes. And we'll all <laughs> It's basically the scene from The Lion King where Mufasa and Simba are, like, horsing around in the grass, like, you're always going to be alive, Dad. Yes, sirree. It is an emotional scene, even though I'm making light of it, because uh, Peter does finally tell him, oh, by the way, um, there's a Mark Bagley pages in ASM 400 where Aunt May uh, said that she knew the secret all along. I didn't want to tell you about it because I wanted to have my own secret when I found out I was the clone. So they bro it out, and uh, like I said, they'll always be bestest friends forever. Um, in between some of these scenes, it's intercut with various people getting mysterious invitations, you know, to like meet at the Daily Bugle. And uh, none of these people who have fallen into various traps at any point throughout their lives think that this is suspicious at all these online, these unsigned <laughs> letters. But, like Liz, you know, company CEO, like, oh, Ben Urich said to like meet him tonight at the Bugle. And she doesn't call Ben to like confirm this. And Ben gets the same letter from her. Like, it's all parent trap stuff where like, if anyone would text or call each other or page each other because it's the 90s mm-hmm. to confirm this, someone would easily be able to say what's up. Like, spoiler alert. Well, I'm not going to say who it is, but the shadowy figure's plan basically relies upon the fact that nobody confirms their appointments. Including the shadowy portrait on her wall who you can't see who it is. <laughs> I, wonder who it, I wonder who the company founder, who her father-in-law is. And, <laughs> and, and for some reason, she's like, oh, yeah, Ben Urich wants me to meet him in a parking garage. You want to come, Foggy, as your lawyer or as your boyfriend? Like, why are you bringing your lawyer slash boyfriend to, like, meet a mysterious informant on Halloween? Like, that's kind of weird. But it's a, it's a good, nice bit of continuity with Daredevil. So the Daily Grind has to hire a new waitress because um, their old reliable waitresses, you know, quit all of a sudden. And it's Alison Mongrain, the woman who can't help but never smile and always look laughably evil. Um, so laughably evil that, you know, uh, in case the readers don't get the point, there's a picture of a witch right behind her with a face similarly shaped to hers. And even yeah, – um, <laughs> even sure even Shirley and Devin are like thinking in their like thought balloons like, man, this woman's horrible. But I'm sure that she'll be alright to like serve our customers on Halloween. You know, like Da-da-da. because if there's if there's anything that thing that, you know, people who manage coffee places love, it's unpleasant waitresses to serve their customers and drive their business away and cause their customers to miscarry. Or so I would guess. <laughs> Is she the only person who interviewed? It's kind of implied, I mean, I guess it's more of a discussion point, but it's kind of implied that, like, 
for some reason, the reach of the shadowy figure is, like, so vast that, like, not only was he able to, like, make sure that, like, the employees didn't show up, but that, like, nobody else would apply for some reason. Mm-hmm. I-, I could see the shadowy figure, like, Mrs. Doubt firing the, like, classified ad, like, changing the phone number so that, like, nobody shows up. And then, like, crank calling, like, surely a bunch of times. So by the time Allison Mongrain shows up, like, she looks like the best candidate, you know, because it's the 90s. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Seaward Trainer decides that instead of trying to call the you know Parker or Ben or Riley because yeah I know there's because no cell, cell phones, phones don't exist right now. Yeah, but there's pay phones. There's answering machines. There's pay cell figures. phones do exist. And Aunt Anna mentions in a later issue she has one. <laughs> yeah, but Peter has uh, spoiler alert for someone else's issue. Peter has this brand new groundbreaking technology, the pager. It could connect him and Mary Jane in an instant. Like, I love he's like showing it off to Ben. Like, wow. So uh, he's running and uh, he narrowly escapes Gaunt, but uh, is killed by the shadowy figure before he can tell Peter and Ben whatever the news is. And, uh, the cliffhanger is basically Peter and Ben are still growing out and Mary Jane, you know, calls Peter to say like, hey, you should meet Anna and I at the coffee grind later. And some unknown person is listening on the phone call like, yes, later. To be continued when Mary Jane changes her outfit in the phone booth for some reason because she's wearing a different one in the next issue. Uh, um, I, I don't have I don't have the issue in front of me that I miss any major plot points. No, you that, that, okay, you mentioned that, that Seward Trainer died. Yeah, Seward, Seward Trainer is dead. Seward Trainer, we hardly knew you. This is the last time I'll be able to use this particular accent for Seward Trainer. Thank you. <laughs> well, luckily, you have the Osborne Journal. Yes, yes, I do have the Osborne Journal. You you brought it up. There you go. D- dated reference. You're not getting my butt light, Peter. Does anyone remember that dumb commercial from the 90s? Yes. That's right. Enjoy this classic commercial from the 90s. Dad? Yeah? There's uh, something I want to tell you. What is it, son? Well, Dad, you're my dad. And I love you, man. You're not getting my Bud Light, Johnny. For the great taste that won't fill you up and never let you down, make it a Bud Light. Ray, forget it, Johnny. Oh, okay. Okay. I, <laughs> that one passed me by. I was like, but Peter doesn't drink. But oh, well, like, <laughs> I was like, I was like, well, Ben drinks. So, you know. All right. So we're going to start. I'm going to start. We're going we're gonna to talk about these individual issues instead of doing them as a whole like we've done in the past because it's, you know, a monumental episode. So. Uh, Gerard, give us your thoughts first. Oh boy, uh, I really hate Gaunt. <laughs> I don't know if I'm alone on this. Like the whole mystery where it's like, who is Gaunt, and then it just kind of ends anticlimactically. I know it's not a big deal in this issue, but this is like the kind of beginning. Like, oh boy, I hope you guys are invested in this Gaunt story. And I'm like, oh no, not really. Oh, I have a story to tell about that when we talk about the next one. I, and and uh, Josh pointed out in his recap, but the way that Seaward Trader is awkwardly not mentioning who, who the kind of mysterious figure is, is just, it's comical. Like, it, it's even in his thought balloons that he's not mentioning my name. I'm like, really? Come on. It's him. It's him. that guy. The bad guy. I know you. Girls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love the visual gags of this issue, but I'll get to that in a minute. 
Yeah, this isn't your your thought. Shut up. I the whole like again, Josh made fun of this, but I do like the whole beginning with uh, with Peter and Mary Jane outside, and then like with the Halloween decorations, which have lots of lots of plastic uh, mobiles and ghosts hanging from trees and things. It's pretty cool. Uh, there's a whole conversation they have about uh, uh, Bugs, Rocky, and Muggsy, which I thought was great because if you don't know, he's ref- they're referencing the cartoon uh, Bugs and Thugs, that old Looney Tunes one. And by right. the uh, for the record, Peter is right. Uh, Muggsy is the big one, and Rocky's the little one. So eat that, Mary Jane. Uh, uh, it figures a woman would be a fake geek girl and pretend to know what a cartoon is. No. <laughs> <laughs> she what probably is this, diversity even, in comics? <laughs> she probably doesn't even listen to the bands no! the t-shirts she wears. No! Stop. I'm joking. By I don't way, really wish. I'm just saying it. <laughs> Fight <Say> me. <laughs> no, because Don referenced uh, diversity in comics. And there's a, uh, he's suing Mark Wade for... Well, it's a long story. I'm not getting into it. Yeah. Oh yeah. wow. <laughs> there's a whole Josh. There's a whole hashtag campaign. Have you been paying attention? Hashtags, man. Weren't you anti-hashtags? I was. I I I I realized that times were changing, and I was just the old man yelling at kids to get off my lawn. So uh, I've I've embraced the hashtag because it's it's evolve or die at this point. Unfortunately, as is typical with you, you kind of beat it into the ground, so now you're permanently associated with it. Good luck. Hey, that's <laughs> I'll own it. <laughs> I don't care. Like <laughs> I have post-traumatic stress friends. disorder. I am compelled to say spider when I say the word spider and island together. It always has to be preceded with hashtag. I mean, to be fair, there was that Daily Bugle like tie-in thing that they did, where like the yeah. reason why I like beat it into the ground because was they used a hashtag like in that Daily Bugle tie-in thing. I think it was something like eight times. Like I sat there and counted it, and it was like a three-page spread. And it was like they really want us to be tweeting about this. I mean, they were putting it on the covers. I mean, it's not like you just pulled it out of nowhere. But anyway, uh, <laughs> Gerard <laughs> defending Josh from an insult, <laughs> <laughs> an insult that I made. What? This is so confusing. Uh, I I hate this whole thing where where or, or I don't know if I hate it. It's actually kind of unintentionally funny. Where God is like. I'm now rejuvenated, and now I'm super dangerous, and now I will kill... Oh, Seward's gone. <laughs> like, it's just an awkward, like, full-page splash of him just not doing anything because he, he missed who he was trying to get. I thought about what, that, yeah. What was the point of all of that? I don't know. Um, the, yeah, Josh mentioned the witch picture with Alison Mongrain. I thought that was cute, even though it was very on the nose. And But uh, the one thing that took me out of this, besides the fact that I hate Gaunt, is that I don't know if anyone will agree with me. We'll have to discuss this. But, man, is it me or does the art just get worse as the issue goes? Like, look at the first couple of pages and, like, you know, it's, like, prime Luke Ross, like, the faces and everything like that. Like, Peter looks great and Mary Jane and, you know, see what you're trying. And then you look at, like, the last couple of pages and you're like, what the hell? Is that even the same artist that drew this? I'm going to guess, and I'm sure Zach has Life of Riley open. If he doesn't, open it now. Uh, but he probably had some kind of crazy deadline to have to make to do all this stuff. Because, boy, it deteriorates fast. But, yeah, I don't know. As part one of a four-parter, not much really – there's not much that, that goes on in this issue to differentiate from the next one. You know what I mean? Like, they just kind of meld together. And so it felt like almost like a waste of space. So I, 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 I'm going to say you say this one's like a C because it's just there. 
I feel like uh, they save all the good stuff for parts three and four. Okay. Uh, Josh, your thoughts? Josh is giving medication right now, so uh, circle around it. <laughs> okay, Donovan, what's your thoughts? Um, I, I want to talk about the artwork, and I mean, I, I know it missed an episode, so I don't know. Is this Luke Ross's first issue in the Spider-Man books, or have we seen him premiere before? You fill, he did fill-ins on uh, Sensational. Yeah, he, okay. did, he did a fill-in on Sensational, and then he also did the, the last part of the Wizard story that we did. Yeah, I, I, I thought from the very from the very beginning mm-hmm. with the cover, I, I I can't tell who half those people are, and I know I like Luke Ross in the '90s. I'm not I'm not like Brad who like just doesn't like him in the '90s and like likes him later on. Like his his more dynamic cartoony style, I do kind of find endearing. But I don't think that this is very good artwork in this issue. I think I think it's not so much that it gets worse. I think it just is inconsistent. Like when there are close ups on like Peter's face or something, like when he's telling Ben that he loves him and stuff. I think mean, that's that's kind of decent. But I think generally like like Peter's hair kind of goes back and forth between like a mullet and big pretty knot. And like I think the coloring is very bland. Well, that's been a case with the Clone Saga for like years. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, like, I, I've seen worse artwork from the Clone Saga, but I really think that, like, this is kind of distractingly... I think I think he's very green, and I don't know how far into his career he is, but, like, I just don't think this is a... Uh, I this think looks, he gets better in, in, like, issues soon after this, but this issue I don't think is his best work. This is his second um, issue that he's done. So this is the second time... Yeah, well, this is the second issue he's done on this run. He, he did a, a third issue, because he did Sensational 7, and then he did Spectacular 239, and now we're at 240. So um, this is only like his third issue as... Um, I don't think his style's really developed all that much yet here, the way it does, well, even starting with next issue. Well, let me ask you, Don, if you thought the same thing I did, because I, I, as soon as I saw like how the artwork started changing a lot later on the issue, I flipped back to the beginning to see how many anchors this book had. And I was shocked when I saw it was only one. Because this is the kind of thing that always happens when you have somebody doing, like, breakdowns and it has, like, five different anchors or something like that. Actually, I I did the same thing, but it was for uh, uh, the Steve Scrooge comic rather than this. Oh, okay. Um, So I didn't necessarily think – although when you mentioned it got worse, I did did go to the earlier pages and kind of compare. And I don't know if it's because of the scene or whatever, but, like – and again, just to make it clear, I'm not, not like, ragging on Luke Ross because I know that he's – this is early in his career now. I'm just saying, like, you know, I don't think this is an example of him being great because artists we like aren't always great 100% of the time. So it's, it is yeah. what it is. Um, story-wise, I was kind of like rolling my eyes a lot throughout the beginning, but by the end, after Super Trainer died, um, I kind of I was on board with the general plotting of this first, the first part of a four-parter uh, because, you know, yeah, even though there's a lot of saccharine nonsense with Peter and Mary Jane and Ben, it is, it is for an absolute purpose even though i feel that like he said these speeches to them before but like it's it's made for a purpose and in the in the background you have um mendel strom chasing seward trainer like like it's like sylvester and tweet wait he's mendel strom oh no i didn't know that like god was supposed to be a secret identity i i mean i know that it's revealed later on but i thought that like the readers would have known but again i I missed his first appearance or his reappearance we'll we'll, we'll discuss that next issue um but like uh I I think overall I like I liked the heart of it even though like I liked Peter and Mary Jane talking about cartoons but when they when they out, when they outright say you're my husband and I love you I think that's just very like on the nose direct like unnatural writing but when they talk about like other stuff when, when people are in love you don't you want to see the reason why they're in love rather than just them say it all the time and I think like like a lot of fiction kind of does that a lot um, 
I mean, Josh brings a good point about the supporting cast. Why shouldn't they be suspicious that they're involved in the Spider-Man comic book um, with these plots? But like at the same time, I wasn't thinking about that at the time, so it was like whatevs. I didn't like uh, the Liz and Foggy thing because I thought Foggy looked downright creepy. He looks like clown. Foggy is a creep. <laughs> he, he looks like a uh, clown or Billy Kincaid from Spawn. Like I, I really don't like that face. That, that kind of creeped me out. <laughs> I thought I thought bloated Jay Leno. <laughs> he, he, he definitely looks bloated. It's, it's like he's like t- tying up like the, the cord of the phone on his fingers. Like, like, I don't know. I just you hang up first, Liz. And I know they're together, but I just wish it wasn't so sleazy looking. <laughs> um, sleaze. I don't think the fog is a sleaze. Well, I, I guess it depends on the writer. Uh, have, have you not read any issue of Daredevil ever? <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> let, let me just say, let me just say, since I just read Born Again for the first time within the last month or so, <laughs> yeah, Foggy's a creeper. Man. <laughs> and, and, and by the way, the thing that nobody talks about in Born Again is that like the woman that he's hooking up with is technically his niece by marriage. You were okay. Like she's not his blood niece, but it's like the niece of his wife or ex-wife or something. Um, if I'm remembering that correctly, which and I believe the, I am. And the part of Foggy Nelson shall be played by Woody mm. Allen. Mm. Oh, oh, jeez. Oh, 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 the MDR double. What are we uh, do? Okay, um, so like... So, okay, I, I think there's been again consistency in this podcast with how I kind of... Because I say, again, it's Spider-Man through the Clone Saga, but a lot of things were surprising mm. for me. Um, I have read... Issues, but when I was when I was a kid, but I did not read anything. Or I'm not read anything. Not read a lot. Everything. So I've not read the entirety for the fourth part. I definitely own 75, but like I don't think I've read this issue before. And so um, I don't think I I don't believe I knew that Secret Trainer was killed by the mysterious mastermind. And I just thought that was really really cool. Like that's that's a great way to open up the stakes in the, in the, in the first part. And like. You probably could have like if, to, to avoid the whole. It's you, you. You probably could have had. Um, mysterious mastermind kill him in the very first scene rather than just kind of making a gigantic chase scene because it, it, I, it didn't make sense how he escaped gaunt continuously but um I'm pretty sure shadowy figure just wanted to go for a walk with his new robot friend <laughs> he's getting away get him I can't and then I have to step out of the shadows and my face will be shown before like part three <laughs> <laughs> It's like that Simpsons scene where like Bart jumps out the window, then Homer says, "Stop! He's heading for the window." <laughs> um, but uh, it, I thought that was really cool. I, I was like, I was like, "Oh snap!" He, I mean, no pun intended, but like, I, I enjoyed. <laughs> I, don't, I don't hate Siri Trainer, but like, I thought that was really solid comic book writing to like up the stakes, and it matched perfectly with the saccharine "I love you, Ben," "I love you, Peter" kind of stuff, which I like. I like the Peter and Ben stuff, but um, overall. I think this is a clumsily written issue, but I think what it went for, it achieved ultimately, and um, I dug it. So I'll, I'll give it a C plus. Okay, C plus, C out of Gerard. Greg, what's your grade? I'm going to give this one a B. A lot of that is tied with the fond memories I have for when this arc was coming out. Because, you know, I followed the Clone Saga from the beginning. Then I've been reading Spidey comics for years before that. And I remember speculating for months over who Gaunt is and who the Mastermind is with my brother and with other friends of mine who were reading the book and rushing to the comic shop each week to get each issue as they came out. So I was excited at the time. And when I read these, even though I see more of the flaws here, that excitement sort of comes back. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 
but I like the issue, and I yeah, Luke Ross's art is not the best here, but he, but I still kind of dig it at the same time. I feel like I like the way he conveys emotions, and I'd be over the top, but I still kind of like it. Is it the best? No, but I I like it. Okay. Uh, Gr- uh, Greg, we'll move to Josh. Luke Ross's art was the best here, but I know I don't know if um it was him that came up with these little artistic Easter eggs or if it was in the script. Um, I'll talk about and, that. Okay, yeah, because I know that it's and I don't want to steal everything from Life Rally, but I remember when I was reading Life Rally, there was like stuff I missed. Like I mentioned the witch and uh, Mary Jane and like the ghost and um, but then like there's there's even little things like the book, like Prince and the Popper and. Uh, Pinocchio so I like that I like the touches like that um which uh make this book strong in a second and third reading and um I I like seeing all of Spider-Man's friends together even if they're being idiots not like confirming their appointments like oh it's you know it's Liz and oh it's um is this oh, the issue the is this the issue where uh Jonah like yells uh uh like I am the editor of this paper because I'm no. like you're not oh, okay 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 um and even though the talk was schmaltzy, um, I thought that it was very a very good bit of continuity that wasn't continuity porn that served the story to have Peter mention the ASM 400 conversation with Aunt May to Ben Riley. I thought that that was a powerful scene. And again, like it was it served the story well. And it like it, it was an emotional moment that made sense, you know, to like put in there. So I dug that. Um, Seaward Trainer dying is um it, it just comes off as clearing the decks, to be quite honest. Like, you know, okay, like, we're getting rid of anything related to the Clone Saga so that there's no carryovers when this is over. So I, I don't really have too much to say about that um, and how he went down. Otherwise, like, to review this issue on its own, it, it's, um, you know, aside from talking about the art, it's almost a little hard because it's basically a setup issue. This is like a you're loading the gun issue. This is the as Gerard said on Amazing Spider-Man classic so so many years ago when we were still doing this show uh cocking the Chekhov's gun. Although I I wouldn't say that these are <laughs> Chekhov's guns per se, but like, you know, uh but you know, basically cocking the guns, you know, getting ready to fire later on in the story. This is this is the setup. This is the first act. This is the beginning of the scary movie when like everyone's a happy family before they all get brutally murdered. Okay. So, uh, oh, I got a graded B. Yeah, that was my next question. Uh, all right, so I'm gonna, I am gonna dust off the old chestnut of Life of Riley, part 32 of 35. The storyline was gonna originally be called Book of Revelations, and the inciting incident was gonna be see what Trina finding out the identity of the mysterious mastermind and stealing one of his journals, the one that outlines the entire master plan of the Clonsock from beginning to end, to get this book into the hands of either Ben Riley or Peter Parker. Seward would die in the attempt, but the journal would make it its way to our heroes. Once they learned the truth, the stage would be set for the climactic showdown. During the chapters of Book of Revelations that would take place in the core Spider titles, the readers would get just in the, uh, the most pertinent information from the journal. Who is behind the Clone Saga? Why? A brief explanation of how. The full contents in the journal would be laid out to see all for all to see in the Osborne Journal, which Glenn Greenberg was writing. He was excited by this plan. It tied his book directly into the storyline and made the Osborne Journal one-shot a more essential piece to the event. However, as the story evolved and the journal became less and less important, the title was just simply changed to Revelations. In the end, the journal didn't even figure into the storyline, and the Osborne Journal was more or less 
became a standalone project for those continuity-minded readers who were very curious about how everything tied together. So the first symbolic tease occurs on the credits page, which is a shot of Mary Jane hanging from a tree as a little ghost the same pose as Mary Jane. The other tease appears as Peter and Mary Jane talk about the life they're going to have. This talk occurs as Peter and MJ walk past a dead-end sign. Glenn's comments were, Todd DeZago did a great job on these little visual gags and bits of foreshadowing. He put a lot of thought into them, and they worked out very well. Glenn remembers how much it was to read the Spider-Man message boards on AOL, LOL, and, and see whether the readers picked up on the gags and could guess where the story was headed. Um, we mentioned the uh, Allison um, monogram, the witch uh, deal. There's also, when you look at the the scene with Ben, he's got an upside-down horseshoe above his head, um, which is a, signifies bad luck. Um, there's You mentioned the Prince and the Popper, but that was several of them. So it was Todd DeZago that did all that. Um, so There's also, yeah, besides Prince and the Popper, I noticed one of them is the Brothers Karamazov, which I have to think is a nod to uh, JMD materials. Probably. <laughs> So, um, talk about edit, uh, Foggy for a second. Editor-in-Chief Bob Harris pushed for Foggy Nelson to be involved in this story since Foggy and Liz had started seeing each other over in Daredevil. <laughs> Out of all the things to be an editorial mandate, it was Foggy Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And Harris wanted there to be more of a quote-unquote shared universe feel amongst the Marvel books, especially since Fantastic Four, Avengers, and most of their related characters have been shunted off into the Re- Heroes Reborn universe, controlled by Jim Lee and Bob Liefeld. Ultimately, however, Foggy's presence in the storyline didn't really amount to anything. It didn't even lead to an appearance by Daredevil. He was essentially used as more, uh, one more bit of cannon fodder for the big climax, which was kind of a disappointment. So um, the last part I'll talk about for this section is Bob Harris played a major role in the plotting of the story. Indeed, as Glenn recalls, he pretty much outlined the whole thing chapter by chapter and told the writers what he wanted in each issue. There were certain elements he absolutely insisted on, such as having the entire supporting cast lured one way or another to the Daily Bugle, where their lives would be jeopardized by the master villain before he, once he finally revealed himself. Assistant editor Mark Bernardo pointed out during one of the plotting sessions that revel- the Revelation storyline would run through the month of October, with the last chapter coming out around the time of Halloween. Mark said that since the villain was going to be the Green... Go- Spoiler... Uh, his and his trademark with weapons were his pumpkin bombs. Wouldn't it be perfect to tie that storyline into Halloween? In fact, why not have the whole storyline take place on that day? Bob liked it so liked the idea a lot and decided to go with it. So, and we're recording in October too. Ooh, synergy. Ooh. It probably won't come out in the month of October, but anyway. But we are recording in October. So anyway, the uh, my my thoughts on this. I loved this issue when it came out. I, I like Greg. I, I instantly go back and re- remember the the feelings I had as I'm reading this issue. I was like, "Oh, they're going to tie up. They're going to finish the Clone Saga. What is this?" And I wasn't even as, as invested as Greg was. But um, yeah, I remember the time period for for my family. We were doing craft shows almost every week, and um, so I would read these comics at, at, at craft shows w- with my mom selling jewelry and my dad selling like wooden pieces that he made. So, yeah, I mean, it was, there was some fond memories that I had at, at, of, over this period of time. So I, and I, I didn't, I don't dislike the artwork as much as you guys did, 
but uh, you are right, Jordan. It doesn't. It's not nearly as hyper detailed as as it once was. Can I mention uh, another piece of, pro- of probably very unintentional synergy around this time that these issues were come out? The episode's turning point. No, Goblin War and Turning Point were also airing on Fox Kids, so let's just say uh, Shadowy uh, Figure was a really big deal at the time. There you go. <laughs> it was a bad month for Mary Jane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mary Jane! Where is she? Mary Jane! She's in the hospital, Peter. We've been paging you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did she fall into a time dilation portal? A what? Are you more <laughs> on that in a minute? <laughs> All right. So then we. Uh, so with that, I, I give this. I give this an, an A minus. That's rose colored glasses talking. Really? I freely. I like this issue. I like. I like the setup. I love the scene with Ben and Peter. This this scene with Ben and Peter is the scene that I've been waiting to get to for so long. This is the scene that solidifies my feelings of Ben Riley, Peter Parker being like brothers. This uh, I can is I see that. Yeah. So I, I, I abs- That's what makes the issue for me. The banter between the two is excellent. The banter with Mary Jane's excellent. I just remember now. Obviously, the foreshadowing that's put in here is very, very like cut it with a with a butter knife, but. At the time of reading this, it was like, oh, man, Ben and Peter, they're bonding. Yeah, it's even better. They're more like brothers. And then we get to the next issue, which yeah. Mary Jane changes her hairstyle and outfit. And, and Anna Watson also suddenly goes from black to silver hair. <laughs> so uh, it's the pregnancy hormones. They've, they've affected her wardrobe. Yeah, <laughs> because it's radioactive pregnancy hormones, and they're so strong that they even affected her hand. Uh, All right, Donovan, you are going to be doing the recap for Sensational but, Spider-Man. But before you get into that, I just want to make one comment about that Life of Riley thing you mentioned. Like, yeah. Glenn Bringer is like that foggy Nelson cameo. It didn't even amount to Daredevil showing up. Like, did he really think that like that was going to happen? Like, just because like Foggy was going to be like creeping around Liz, that that would mean that like. Daredevil was gonna like show up at the end of Revelations, like the way that like the Silver Age, maybe. Yeah, like the way that he like typed that was like really weird. Like, oh, that Foggy Nelson thing didn't amount to anything. He didn't like 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 was was he expecting Foggy to save the day or call Matt or like like did he think that that was gonna be anything more than a cameo? Like, I don't understand what he was going for with that like criticism. Wow. Yeah, that's, I mean that's true. I mean it, it, it doesn't make any sense. Like. All that much, like like you could take the foggy stuff out and not even care, right? But like his, his, but like the way that Glenn Greenberg is like disappointed with the way it turned out. Like I don't understand how else it would have turned out. Like it's it's. I I mean, I suppose you could. I suppose you could have like Daredevil show up and and then him see Peter in the classic costume and and be like. But but the tease is just it's it's a secondary character's hanger on that makes him like. A secondary character to a secondary character. Like, he's so unimportant in the grand scheme of things. Like, there's no yeah. way it would be important in any way. Yeah, I, I don't I don't get it. Other than... It's, it's, yeah. it's like, the, it's like those cameos in, in the Marvel movies. Like, when Loki turns in the um, uh, uh, Chris Evans for, like, five seconds, it's like, we didn't even get an appearance by Agent Carter in Thor The Dark World, you know? Why did um you know why did Loki change in the Chris Evans? That amounted to nothing. 
Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll freely admit, the time when I originally read this, I barely knew Daredevil, so I really didn't have an idea who Foggy Nelson was, and it didn't leap out at me. It didn't... It didn't pull me out of the issue or anything. I was just like, oh, this, guy's, this is guy lives in the stadium. Okay. So, all right. Donovan, we're going to move on to issue number 11 of Sensational mm-hmm. Spider-Man. Brat. Sensational Spider-Man Revelations Part 204. The Secret of Gaunt. This 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 begins where the last one left off uh, with Mary Jane hanging up on Peter. Not hanging up on Peter. They, they end the conversation. So she and Aunt Anna go to shop before they meet up with Peter and Ben at 4.30. And then narration is like, you know, this is Mary Jane Watson Parker. She is pregnant. She is in love. And she's in terrible danger for she's, you know, under careful watch of Professor Xavier in the shadows talking to a giant robot who was revealed to be um, – well, oh, yeah. He calls him Mendel. So it's Mendel Strong. We can say that now. Um, yeah. J- Jameson, Jameson's upset because he's invited to a party. Um, and <laughs> Robbie's like, well, I was invited too. And he's like, bah, bah. he's just like, he's in a bad mood because he's not making any damn sense. He, he actually, yeah, he actually including says, calling himself the editor, which he hasn't been since 1983, but you know, know, whatever. Yeah. I'm the editor, publisher and owner and president of the board of directors. And then Robbie says, I'm the editor. Um, <laughs> why are you doing exposition, Jonah? We all know. <laughs> So he so he 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 quacks at at uh, one of uh, the recently hired tech guys who are working on the elevator, and uh, we go back to Forest Hills where Peter and Ben continue to talk, and they're talking about how things are really turning up. And now that the Avengers and the Fantastic Four are totes dead, you guys, um, the world may need, or at least New York may need more heroes. And since Peter is getting his powers, has gotten his powers back, or mostly gotten his powers back. Maybe there could be two Spider-Men, uh, which I have thoughts on. And um, he, starts to, he starts to just kind of like um, plead with his uh, – I guess he thinks that Peter Ben's is still the real one. Like, dude, I, they've always, always fully returned. Like, watch this. And um, uh, he kind of freaks Ben up, but Ben's, Ben end up, ends up saying, okay, I don't want anything to happen to my little brother. We see uh, the first appearance of Arthur Stacy. Who is a major player in the in the last? Not his cop alert. <laughs> continuity cop alert. Oh, okay. Oh, no, 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 no. Okay, okay. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Shut up. Before, you say, before you say it, before you say it, we did see like the back of his ear in a panel in the seventies. <laughs> so whatever. <laughs> Big fucking shit. <laughs> we saw a picture of him with, when Gwen was at the window. I I, I remember that. Whatever. <laughs> How'd the comic guy throw me, throw my ass out? <laughs> I hope you feel good about yourself. So, but but he introduces himself as Arthur Stacy, and once we brought up, brought to speed on Spider-Man, um, we see more supporting cast members invited to this mysterious meeting uh, on Halloween. Uh, Flash. Uh, it's not, it's not anonymous, but Flash figures Peter, and he thinks he might even have a chance to redeem himself with Betty Brant as Thunder cracks. In the- um, and uh, whilst Peter and Ben are still talking, they see their spider just goes off, and they see kids playing with each other. But it turns out that their spider just went off because Mendelstrom, aka the Robot Master, aka Gaunt, aka whatever, starts attacking them. Ben, like Sailor Moon, transforms into Spider Man. He did that really quick. While Peter tries to get the kids out of danger, um, and 
Boss is going out at Mary Jane and on a uh, order some food at the Daily Grind, and the waitress, who is not Rogue but Al- uh, Allison Mongrain, slips something vile and, and dastardly into her soup. Um, we come back to the fight, and Ben is thinking that you know, oh, is Gaunt the one who made Seaver trying to betray me? At this point, the, the, the children have revealed to be like mm-hmm. devil robots after Peter. Um, we come back to Daily Grind, and Mary Jane is like in severe and complicated labor. Like she's already, the stretcher's already there. We cut. We don't see this happen. We cut back, and she's already like you know having contractions and stuff, um, which I found to be very harrowing. Um, Strom is revealed to be you know the big robot guy, much surprised to Ben, and Peter is spinning off these robot children. When Peter gets a beep, uh, you know, get a notification on his beeper saying that Mary Jane and the baby are in trouble. To be continued in ASM 418. All right. So, Josh, we will start with you. So, I, while Dom was recapping this, I had what they call shower thoughts, which are like, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it's kind of like another version of fridge thoughts, like things that you realize like later on as you're going about your day. Norman Osborne's whole plan, because like he wants this all to happen tonight. So his plan hinges on the fact that Mary Jane and Aunt Anna are going to go to the Daily Grind. Like, what if they went to Chili's or something instead? Like, does he just have, like, go ahead, Gerard? I was going to say, I actually thought about this while I was reading the issue, too, and and I just immediately dismissed it. Because the thing is, he probably did his research and realized that Peter and Mary Jane go to the Daily Grind so often that it would probably be a fairly safe bet she'd go there at least once during the day. Not necessarily to grab dinner or anything like that. Maybe just to go grab a coffee or something like that. It might not have happened the way they expected, but that was a fairly safe bet in this time period. Take that silver spoon. <laughs> alternative theory. He, like, Allison Mongrain is one of, like, 50 agents that he has at, like, all of Mary Jane and Peter's favorite restaurants on the off chance that, like, she goes to any one of those tonight. Like, he, he, he's got them all, like, ready to go. But this plan is, like, so precise. If Mary Jane and Aunt Anna did not go that day, like, the whole plan would fall. And, I mean, and even before they decided to go, like, he, like, this, this was thought out because he had the other waitresses, like, not show up. He had Allison Mongrain, like, show up for the interview. So there is a lot of things in play that rely upon Mary Jane going there. Now, the Spider-Man supporting cast are creatures of habit, so, like, I'm not going to call it a plot hole or say, like, you know, put on, like, my, you know, film critic glasses and say, this is obviously why that doesn't work. It's just, like, something that hit me later. Like, Osborne is so lucky, mm-hmm. spoiler alert, that they're uh, creatures of habits. Um, I've always said that I grasp at straws with Betty Brand, so here's another straw, for, you know, for me to grasp at everyone. <laughs> With everyone else, like, they're like, wow, that's strange. My envelope has not been signed. But Osborne knows that Betty's an idiot enough that, like, he'll actually sign hers with an O and she still won't get it. He's like, <laughs> I'm going to do this in plain sight. Like, like <laughs> that's strange. An invitation. And it's like, Flash is like, and mine signed anonymous. But, like, Betty's like, oh? Who's Oh? <laughs> <laughs> who has the last name oh that's like you know a prominence you know like uh family in this city now granted i wouldn't not automatically think norman osborne either because you know he's he's supposed to be dead but uh oh well um I, I i think that don is gonna hit most of the two spider-man points thing but it was really really funny to read that in like 2018 lenses where like not only is there like two spider-man in the 616 or if it is still the 616 now but like 
there's we've literally had like spider-man like team books of different spider-man and we have a movie coming out at the end of the year about like a bunch of spider-man teaming up so uh (laughs) there's some things that aged really really amusingly in this issue like the pager and you know and the multiple spider-men um i don't necessarily dig the art that much in this i gotta be honest um I, i i didn't like the way mary jane's face was drawn um and some of but you know no, I, I like seeing the Spider-Man supporting cast and stuff. I don't understand the point of like, and maybe this comes back in part four and I forgot about it because I purposely didn't read part four in anticipation of this. But like, is, is locking the elevators like in the middle of the day, like supposed to stop them from like leaving? Because can't they just take the stairs? And what about the people like Foggy and Liz and and uh, Flash who haven't shown up yet? It was supposed to keep them in the building for when the final battle happens at the end of Revolution, at yes. the end of part four. Were the stairs uh, blocked off, too? Yes. Okay. All right. I retract my criticism. All the doors were locked. Yeah. Um, The revelation that it's Mendelstrom, I know they talk about this in Life of Riley, but that is... He, aside from a random issue of Spectacular Spider-Man and, like, you know, the Bronze Age, he he was, like, a one-and-done Dicko character who was like almost never, almost never mentioned again. So it's really, really weird to bring him back for this, especially like given what happens to him in the next part or whatever, like all this mystery and lead up and it's, Oh, it's a guy that had one appearance in the sixties and then died. Or so we thought, and yeah, it, it only serves as like a red herring for Norman, not even a red herring, but like as a, like a clue for Norman Osborn, because like his origin was tied into Norman Osborn's origin but it's just, I don't know, it, it makes the Gaunt character a waste, which probably ties back to the part that, like, Gaunt was supposed to be the mastermind before they said, oh, no, Gaunt's working for someone else and Gaunt was supposed to be Harry. So it the way that they salvaged the whole Gaunt thing, I'm, I'm not really mm-hmm. into. And Robot Master has been kind of, you know, brought back since this storyline. So, like, where him coming back, at least something has come of it. But it's just really, really random. Like, it would be like if they would have made him, like, just a guy named Joe or something like that. Like, you know what I mean? Or, uh, I don't know. Uh, like, the... Uh, who who it else? Comes like a, if, it comes across as a, as a situation where they're just doing it for a reference to, like, you know, excite themselves. You know what I mean? Like, hey, look like at this when, guy that we remembered. Like. But it's not even like when Dan Slott does it, where he's, like, excited that he remembered it. It's just, like... Aha, this mystery that you've been like trying to figure out, it's actually like this guy. It's like, imagine you're a kid in the 90s and you're like trying to guess who Gaunt is, like Greg and his brother. And then it turns out to be like some guy that like you wouldn't know about unless you read Marvel Masterworks or um, The Essentials. More to comment on that later. Yeah. Yeah, was the Dicko issue his only appearance before this? He. He appeared in um, flashbacks, like, uh, for the Green Goblin's origin, and he appeared in, um, like, you thought he was back from the dead in an mm-hmm. early Spectacular Spider-Man issue, mm-hmm. but it turned out to be uh, his, like, a robot of him. It, it, it was it was a weird thing. It was like a robot that was, like, programmed with his brainwaves or something like that, but, but it wasn't him. He was still dead. Well, in fairness, the criticism that like, hey, who would you? How would you know who this is? You could say the same thing about Norman, though, because I mean, he hadn't been seen since the seventies either. 
but but even if he hadn't been seen, Norman had, was at least like the specter of him was still there. Like it, yeah. it was only like a few years before where you had like um, a Sal Buscema like picture of Harry Osborne like yelling at a painting of his father, saying like you know I'm going to run this business how I see fit. Like the specter of him was like always over the books. Nobody like remembered or gave a shit about the robot master. <laughs> Can I go after Josh? Fine, go after Josh. Uh, C. <laughs> Pastor Greg. All right. I remember when this issue first came out. We again, we picked up my little comic book store, I, and we were heading home. I was sitting in the front seat. My brother, who was really young at the time, was sitting in the back, and he was reading the issue first. So I'm sitting in the front, and all of a sudden, I hear him say cluelessly, "Mendelstrom." Before I'd even gotten a chance to look at the issue. He was a hardcore Spider-Man fan. He did not know who that guy was. And I read it, and I first I thought, okay, this is lame. That one guy from that one issue. and I, But I knew who he was, because I had this book, The Very Best of Marvel Comics, which had a reprint in it of Amazing Spider-Man 39 and 40. And I had read the shit out of that. I, so I knew who, he, who Mendelstrom was. And by that point, I was thinking, okay, shadowy figure is Norman, because this character is tied to Norman. The only time he's ever mentioned is when they talk about Norman's origins. I mean, I wasn't 100%, but I was about 90% at that point. And as for the issue itself, I don't like this nearly as much as the first one. While I still... While I still get taken back to when I re- was first reading these, and there's still that excitement. This issue is that middle chapter that you don't really care about. It's just moving pieces around. I mean, yeah, MJ is getting sick now, which was suspenseful, but Mendelstrom was so anticlimactic. At the same time, though, I mean, yeah, I suppose it could have been Harry, but I don't know. I'm just not too big a, too big a fan of this particular issue. I like the other three parts much better. I give this one a C minus. Josh, what was your, what was your grade? We'll come back to you. You give it a C. Okay. All right. So we got two, we got a C, a C minus. Gerard, what's your grade? I'm also going to give this one a C minus. Uh, the beginning where they have the whole thing where they're teasing stuff that we now know was never going to happen, like the baby and the two Spider-Men and things like that. I, I go back and forth on whether or not I like that. Cause on the one hand, it, it it's trying to make the story unpredictable where they're, you're setting up these things that could happen and giving you kind of a glimpse into what future issues could be. But viewing it back, I mean, you, we can't unread these issues. So we, looking back, we know that none of that stuff happens and it just comes across as red herrings for the sake of like throwing in a twist or something. Mm. So I don't know. I, I, I have mixed feelings about that stuff. Um, as far as like the, the actual major happenings of the issue are obviously Arthur Stacy coming back. I said coming back, not making his first appearance though. <laughs> uh, continuity cop, continuity cop. That, that, uh, I get the same feeling there because I mean, they they he ends up being a major player between now and the reboot, and even in the early part of the reboot. But for the most part, he doesn't end up doing anything. So this whole business where he shows up to set up future storylines kind of doesn't go anywhere. Like, yeah. What's weird. that picture that he he hands over? That's the uh, skeleton. The skeleton that smokes out the pier. Oh, pier. okay. That's what that's what that's what brings him back. That's that's yep. what brings him back. <laughs> We're doing this again. <laughs> yep. uh, 
a, a little little visual gag that I liked. Uh, did you catch when they go into the police station and the and uh, Joker and Harley Quinn are being arrested in the background? Yes, I was uh, I was waiting for somebody to mention that. <laughs> they they miscolored they they miscolored the the uh, the quote unquote the Joker so he doesn't look quite right. But uh, yeah, it, it's them all right. Yeah. For the, on the charge of solicitation, oh, which is even funnier. Uh, <laughs> uh, one thing that really, really bothered me, well, two things really bothered me, is that Ben seems completely indifferent to Gaunt knowing his secret identity. Did, is there something I'm forgetting in a previous issue or something? Cause, he, he, referred, he referred to him as Riley. Okay, Did Ben even react to that? He didn't yeah, in that this was, issue. That was, that was it, back... That was back in Blood Brothers. It's just been so long since we've covered it, so. Okay. Because, I mean, it really struck me as odd in this issue where he's like, he attacks him. I mean, Ben's like, I just needed time to change into Spider-Man. He's like calling him Riley. And like, Ben has no reaction to any of this. I felt like they should have at least acknowledged it. Because maybe I wasn't reading it closely enough, but I don't even remember them acknowledging that God knows who he is beforehand or that they had even... They, there's like a one-panel thing that mentions that they had met each other before, but I don't even think there's a notation that mentions Blood Brothers or anything like that. Uh, and the other thing is, of course, the, the reveal that God is Metal Strom is like super anticlimactic. Not just because it's like, who... If you're a reader in whatever year this issue came out, but but also the fact that like just just the mechanics of how it's done in the story, it's just one panel where he's like, ah yes, I'm Mendelstrom, the robot, you know, whatever. And then like just immediately like within two pages, the story's over. Like it really comes across just like even the story itself isn't treating this as a big reveal, which I get, I get it. It's because that's not who they originally wanted it to be. And obviously, if it was like Harry, that would have been a much bigger deal. But yeah. considering how where where we started with this dude with the build up and how it just ended up, boy, did it just end up going nowhere. Oof. Yeah, here's the thing about Mendelstrom. I mean, at the end of the day, yeah, he showed up in Spider-Man the animated series and Spider-Man the movie, but he's really just a name there, and that's just because of what he did in the comics. Well, it, it it doesn't help that he wasn't Mendelstrom in the cartoon; he was Mordelstrom. There you go. <laughs> for, the most part, yeah. for the most part, he's just a name, but aside from that, he doesn't really contribute much to the mythos or anything about that. I mean, how spectacular Spider-Man pretty much gave elements of his character to Dr. Octopus and the Vulture instead, and if you need a robot master, you've got the more interesting Smythe characters. Right. I mean, basically, he's there as, like, a trivia question answer, really. Like, he doesn't serve much more. Who is Mendelstrom? Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> I don't know. The, putting him in here is weird. And then, of course, the, the fact that he's shown up multiple times over the years. I remember when he shows up during the Jenkins run, and Peter like somehow magically he somehow manages to magically fit the entirety of his information onto a floppy disk, which is preposterous. But it he reappeared for, it in the current Optimus run. It worked for Optimus Prime. Oh god, that's right. We, that issue, one of the many, many issues of the comics where he where he dies. So, um, see episode sixty eight. If you want to hear me talk more about that Jenkins stuff. Oh really? Hmm. Tease. Mm. Uh, mm. Last last point. Um, I, I think I'm a little higher on the art than most of the people. Most of you guys are. This is not like Waringo in his prime. I think his Fantastic Four run is much better than this artistically, but. I don't know. I always get the warm and fuzzy seeing his art because during this time period, it was so def- like 
since Sensational was a much more lighthearted book than the other ones, it immediately kind of uplifts you seeing his his style in the, in this issue. Even though I don't think totally it fits at all. <laughs> you did, this is the kind of issue that you would have had Sal Buscema draw rather than having Mike Waringo, but whatever. Right. And Bill Sienkiewicz ink. No. <laughs> we should never have Bill Sienkiewicz ink anything. Uh, so yeah, I'm giving this one a C-. minus. Uh, not quite my least favorite for reasons we'll get into when we cover the next one. But the- Grades are not good tonight. <laughs> I don't know if I was expecting this. I mean, here's the thing. Everybody always remembers Revelations as being this great arc. It's mainly because of the fourth part. Yes. No, whenever people talk about Revelations, they only talk about Peter Parker 75. Like, this, like does anybody... I, before I even read this, I forgot that this Robot Master crap took three issues. I thought it was one in the... Like, it was just the first part. And then I reread it, and I'm like, oh my god. This is three issues of this. Yeah. Oof. Yeah, the, the first three parts of this should have been one, two issues max. Also, right. one, also or, one, or, or just one, like a giant-sized issue or something for yeah. like the entire thing. Yeah, the, the whole the whole robot master mental strom thing could have probably just been an unlimited issue. Yeah. Uh, also, also, one other thing: is it just me or was Ben Riley earlier in this issue making the exact same argument that everybody makes as why Peter can't be married and have a kid? Sort of. Um, not really. And be Spider Man. I'd have to reread that again, but it would be. You're killed. You have a responsibility to marry Jane and your baby. You can't go out and. Oh, well, I, I want to get into that when I get my. I mean, he, he's not wrong. It's, I mean, the, the, these are good points. I mean, if I was if I was having a kid, I I would be like, I can't podcast. I have a responsibility to my kid. You know, what if I get killed or something? <laughs> That's a hard out here for a hey, hey, cops have. Joe Casada, is that you? (laughs) (laughs) But seriously, though, like, considering it's coming out of Ben Riley's mouth, it it adds a kind of almost weird sinister element to it. Where he's, where I I don't know, maybe I'm the only one who read it this way, but I see that and I'm like, he doesn't want Peter to be Spider Man because he's Spider Man and he's like bogarting it for himself. Especially the way they draw Ben in that scene because he he has this weird look on his face. Where he's explaining yeah. it, where he almost kind of looks evil when he's talking about it. It's like, what the hell? Uh, I, I interpreted it as, like, he's worried about Peter getting hurt because of the power. So he's, like, instead of, like, saying, Peter, you'll get hurt, he's, like, giving him other reasons. Like, oh, it's a bad idea for this and this and this. Like, not that he isn't also worried about that, but, like, I feel like he's genuinely trying to talk Peter out because of concern. Because... You know, even when Peter's, like, doing his tree acrobatics there, like, Ben is, like, slightly worried. He's, like, so. Yeah, well, the powers thing is also another bunch of BS, because that ends up going away after the first three parts of the story and is, like, never mentioned again. Yeah, that's true. All right, uh, Don, you've been, I've been, we've been winding up to you, so it's now your turn. I feel like I definitely like this issue more than everybody else. Uh, and maybe that's because of my, like, you know, in, in, <clears throat> inborn loyalty to Mike Ringo. <laughs> but um, uh, I think I think Jared makes, makes a good point that, like, tonally, he may not fit this well. Because I, th- I found – it's kind of good to the ending with, with, like, with like what happens to Mary Jane. And I knew intellectually what was going to happen. But kind of seeing it, like that smash cut to, like – you go from, like, Alice Mongrain putting, you know, mystery stuff into her suit. He smashed it, like, her with the paramedics. And, like, oh, my baby, ah! I – 
I, I, I was surprised how effective I found that. I was like, oh my god. And like, cut, and we went to the, the next secret issue. ingredient is love. <laughs> Who's been screwing this thing? But like, uh, I think that like, I think that's an interesting uh, talking point to bring up. Whether this should, this should have been a four parter, whether this should have been like I don't know, like a giant size story or whatever. I think that's that. That makes sense. Is, is this padded out? I think the first part was a bit padded out, but um, I thought this is. I thought I like the Peter and Ben stuff, and I don't know if I see Ben being. You know, since like I'm Spider-Man now, so you got to be benched. I don't know if I because to me, I'm questioning why does Peter want to be Spider-Man? He's about to be a father, and also Peter kind of half the time hates being Spider-Man. I mean, I know a lot of times he's like, I love web swinging, and I love the thrill of helping people and fighting bad guys, but like genuinely, he's always one in the family. So I don't know. I felt I found it to be incredibly strange how Mary Jane is on the brink of giving birth, and he's like, I sure would love to be Spider-Man with you, Ben. Like I. I really Why does want Peter want to be Spider-Man? You ever heard of with great power? There was also come great responsibility. I, I think he, I think he wanted the best of both worlds. I really wanted to bring this up because I thought that, like, because it's so close to Tim being a father, I just didn't see why he would like yearn for that. And it, it, this gets into the next issue, which I downright have a problem with in terms of characterization. But like, I mean, I'm not saying that like Peter should like you know never again, but like I feel that he should be more content than this because he's already dealt with the identity crisis of Ben being Spider-Man and him not being Spider-Man before. I mean, this is like not a new new conversation, but because this is so close to like uh, Baby May being born that like it feels like I see what, what Gerard, I think Jared mentioned it or maybe it was Josh that like uh, they're bringing up things that never come to fruit about two Spider-Men. Or what's going to happen in the, in the future. And I don't mind that because that, that feels natural towards, you know, you're going to talk about things and things turn in a certain way. There's, there's, a, there's a deep irony towards what if there are two Spider-Men and, and Ben is Spider-Man now. But like in three issues or, or less, Peter will be the only Spider-Man. I think, I think that's actually pretty good storytelling. But it's weird for me to see that Peter, like, I don't think this story needs Peter wanting to be Spider-Man right now. I think, I think it's actually a lot more tragic and ironic and Spider-Man-esque for him to be Spider-Man when he thought that he was, that he had the final opportunity to kind of go away from it personally. Um, but that doesn't make this, I, I don't think that makes this a, a bad issue. I mean, I know that you guys have hangups on, um, Mendel Strom and I agree that like, he is a weird, like, I don't know why he keeps on coming back. Like, uh, there is a, there is a certain segment of Ditko villains that no one cares about. Like, like the looter, even though I like the looter, like Mendel Strom, um, you know, just kind of this one off, like, like, like that cat burglar dude. So like um living brain, living brain. So so like I don't know why. I think it's kind of cool that like he has an involvement with Norman Osborn, but like I do think I do agree that at the same time it's it's treated it's almost treated as though it's justifying this the end of the story. It's like we're going all the way back to the Ditko era, bringing this guy back, and this story doesn't need a a robot old guy running around. So I agree. This feels like a very '90s show kind of thing to do, but just adding kind of muscle for spider-man to beat up on while more important things are happening and i don't think it bothers me as much but i do think that like objectively it feels like filler like this is not where the story is we're not supposed to give a damn about my god the robot master is mental strong it's like what does that mean <laughs> um but at the same time it's, it it's decent be. action yes it's decent action i think that like i mean i think that like the mary jane stuff is so genuinely harrowing to be bothersome only in the sense of like it, it evokes the response that 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 it wants to, so that's not actually a bad point. But but it was just like oh man, that's awful. Um, and you know I, I really like the artwork. This is 
I know we talked about this before, but like this is my kind of a Ringo where it's a lot more bouncy and kind of like like round and circular. Uh, and I don't know, and, and I kind of you know I like the introduction of the reintroduction of Arthur Stacy. I like the seeing more supporting cast, even though he probably could have done that in one issue. Um, so I don't know if it's just down to the artwork kind of formatting formatting a sort of reading style over this, or if it's just like the issues writing, you know, the talents of Todd Zago or what have you. But like, I, I did like this comic, and it's probably my favorite issue of the of the trinity of these. So I will give this a B. All right. Uh, I give this a B plus. Okay, I, but we know your grading scale is out of whack because you was you in the Clone Saga, so that's like a that's like a C plus for anybody else. You're so like you do a Clone Saga podcast, you to respond to one of Don's points, you know, about like what's going on in Peter's head. Um, I think the issue too is like, yes, Peter should not be thinking about being Spider Man right now, but like if you think about the past like few months of his life, he's lost Aunt May. And he thought he lost his powers for good. And now, like, there's somebody – and then he lost his whole identity. He's lost, like, everything that's, like, made him unique aside from, like, Mary Jane. He even lost his job, even though he's still working there as a freelancer at the Bugle. So – but, like, he lost his, like, staff position. So it's – and he's seen Ben Riley dress up as Spider-Man, the identity that he feels was his, like, every single day. So I think that there's, you know, if I was going to be an armchair podcast psychologist, I think it's Peter trying to, like, recapture some of what he thinks he's lost, even if it's the parts of his life that, like, weren't the greatest. Like, he's no longer Spider-Man. As of, like, until recently, he no longer had his powers. He no longer has his aunt. He no longer has his job. He no longer even has, like, the fact that he's a real boy. He thinks he's a clone. So if being Spider-Man is something that he can take back even ever so slightly and, you know, feeling the basically, um, what's the word, um, euphoria of having his powers back, I think that that's somewhat playing into it. And it's also the whole grass is greener on the other side thing where you're like, yeah, it'll be fun to be Spider-Man again. And then you forget, oh, yeah, everyone that I love always dies when that happens. That's a good point. I, I, I wish that like it was a little bit more converse like in the comic i think that that's an interesting point but like no yeah no, no I, think that makes, I think it makes sense but i don't, I don't know if it was I, I did not think about that at the time i think it was just you know this is like this is like the day she goes into labor where she doesn't know, know about but uh no that makes sense i just i just wish it was it was more of a subtext in the, in the book than it seems to be seems to be right i mean it's and, and and it's it's kind of just um an elaboration on what he told ben the previous issue like he didn't tell her him about aunt may because he wanted something that still made him feel special, but I don't know. Just like, just imagine how it feels for Peter to watch Ben Riley being Spider-Man every day. And that used to be you. It's, it, it's kind of like if you break up with an ex and like you and that ex were miserable together, but you still can't stand seeing someone else with them. Um, I realize I'm being very on the nose with certain people on this podcast and that was not intentional, but like, you get what I'm saying. It was my today is my boy's my wedding anniversary, but yeah, yeah, that that was not meant to be on the nose, but nineties. Uh, anyway, so yeah, my uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do the life of Riley stuff first, like I did last time. Um, so Glenn's comments about them being like this was, of course, the most uncomfortable part of planning the undoing of Mary Jane's pregnancy, but it had been put off for so long, discussed over and over and over again, that it had got to the point where they just had to bite the bullet and confront the situation head on. (laughs) All right. So uh, talking about Mendel Strong, Glenn's comments, 
Middlestrom first appeared in 1966 in Amazing Spider-Man number, Volume 1, number 37, which the comic said 36, so somebody Google that. By Stanley and Steve Ditko. He apparently died of a heart attack at the end of the story and had not appeared since then. However, a robot version of Strom showed up in 1982 in Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, number 68, written by Bill Matlow, penciled by Luke McConnell, and inked by Jim Mooney. It was Mark Bernardo who suggested that God should turn out to be Strom. Amusingly enough, none of the Spider-Man writers even remembered who Strom was. <laughs> you don't say. I can't. Uh, and they didn't take that as a, as a sign. It's probably not a good idea. <laughs> yep. Glenn can't it says he can't blame them. Mark ran the idea by him first, and then he had to go back to the Marvel Masterworks volume that repent, reprinted. Oh my god! 37 to read up on the character. That is so stupid. That would be like bringing the crime master back and, I don't know, making him Bennett Brandt or something. <laughs> da, da, da. Yeah. Who would do something that stupid? Rick Remender. Um, I just remember getting blue screened by, when, by Josh explaining this to me. And I'm like, that can't be real. Come on. And then, like, he has. Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> I remember that discussion quite well. <laughs> Once it was explained to the writers who Strom was, <laughs> sorry, I'm finding that unintentionally hilarious. And how he oh, that, that's funny. How he had a strong connection to Norman Osborn. They all agreed it seemed like a reasonable enough idea. However, there was a great deal of concern about having Gaunt turn out to be an obscure character that hadn't even been mentioned in the books in about 14 years and hadn't been seen in about 30. None of the writers could come up with a better solution, though, and I think they just sort of gave None of them? They're writers! It's their job! I think they were exhausted by this point. And <laughs> they just wanted to go home. When we're, when we're done recapping part three, we should discuss who Gaunt should have been considering who the employer was. Right. He thinks that they should just sort of gave in and agreed to go along. They thinks that, He thinks that they just sort of gave in and agreed, agreed to go along with it rather than really get behind and really embrace the idea. In fact, the manner in which Strom is dealt with in the next chapter would seem to indicate that at least one of the writers wanted to send Strom back to the comic book limbo as quickly and as efficiently as possible, which leads to them talking about part three of Revelation. So I, I, I gave, I told you this earlier, I gave this a B plus. I like it because it raises the stakes. I remember vividly going to Walden Books and getting this book and having to read that part and be like, and, and just like it, it having to, you know, it, it was the next part. I had to get that next chapter. I had to get that next piece of the story. So I, I like the artwork. I like the storytelling. Um, I just, uh, I, I, I even like the Jonah Jameson. I'm editor, publisher, and owner of the Daily Bugle. I'm not going to let some blah, 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 blah. Like that made me laugh. A room full of investigative journalists couldn't figure out that, like, that, 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 that none of them are throwing the party. Yeah. <laughs> Robbie's like, the staff probably did it because they felt sad. Did you ask the staff? No. Like, like Gerard has literally seen me, wa like, have the original issues in hand. None, none of them have covers on it. So I literally read these issues till the covers fell off. So, yes, I'm looking at it through rose-tinted glasses. I'm giving it a B, a B, a B plus. And we are going to move on to the final chapter of the evening. And but Gerard, not the final chapter of Revelations. But not... <laughs> The final chapter of Revelations. Revelations part three of four. Gerard, you have the recap. Oh boy, do I. Uh, this is uh, Revelations part three. This one's written by Tom DeFalco, penciled by Steve Scrooge. 
we'll get to that. Uh, inked by Bud LaRosa and uh, covered by the uh, ever-reliable Bob Sharon. Uh, we start off in the hospital, which apparently is just called New York Hospital. And this is just some non-existent place. Well, actually, New York Hospital is actually real. Whatever, no one cares. Uh, so Mary Jane <laughs> is in the middle of uh, is in the middle of midst of her uh, miscarriage when the doctor approaches, who is some apparently some sort of a shaved gorilla is telling them that he's their new doctor because the usual one that they have isn't there. Uh, Angela. Angela Yin is standing there, and she's like, "Hey, isn't that uh, isn't that one of my uh, coworkers' wives?" Okay, let me take photographs of her while she's in the hospital. Surely this is not a violation. of her <laughs> Yeah, that was rights. weird. <laughs> uh, so then we cut to uh, Ben Riley having a fight with, or Ben Riley and Peter Parker, I should say, having a fight against uh, the robot master Mendelstrom and uh, three children who are now robots, as we learned in the last issue uh, at the end at the. Uh, those children that lured them into that building there were actually uh, Strom's lackey robots. So anyway, there's a there's a whole fight ensuing. I'm not going to get into the details here because it's the 90s and you know exactly what every robot fight looks like. So anyway, uh, uh, Robbie's asking Angela if she had any problems getting information or photos on that wounded cop that was in the hospital. And she informs uh, Joe that something's going on with Mary Jane and it could maybe have lost her kid. And it seems the news seems to be spreading around basically. Uh, we cut back to more of the fight. Uh, Strom is using a bunch of, like, a, uh, what do you want to call these? Like, a bunch of drones that he has flying around that are doing extra things. And again, it's just a 90s robot fight. But Peter breaks off on his own to go fight against the three uh, children robots in an abandoned school. <clears throat> so while this is happening, we cut to a scene of Mary Jane in the emergency room. Or, I don't know. She, it looks like she's room. in... Yeah, I was gonna say delivery room or what. It looks like she's in one of those uh, places that they do like the surgery where they have like students observing it. It's really yeah. oddly drawn. Um, but anyway, so there's a whole thing. Uh, you know, everything's going exactly according to plan, exactly as planned, as the mysterious uh, observer says with this. Yeah, cigar. if I was Mary Jane, I'd be like, "The f you just say?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a really <laughs> awesome in the hospital. <laughs> so so anyway, uh, meanwhile, we go back to Peter, who finds a t- telephone just in the middle of the abandoned uh, school place where he's fighting these robots. So he decides to call back on Anna on her cell phone <clears throat> because cell phones existed in this time period, apparently. Uh, and so, she, you know, he gives her a call. She's like, hey, where are you, Peter? You know, the usual angst. Uh, Peter smacks a little girl across the face of the telephone, which is unintentionally funny to me i hate children uh, so peter's like oh don't worry uh, i'll be nothing will keep me from my wife's side as he throws the children out the window this makes me so happy <laughs> there, there's a panel for fatherhood there's a panel where peter's jumping and he and he puts his feet on the sides of one of the kids like robot kids yeah, heads, and he like twists it around and breaks the kid's neck it's like, this He's is pretty gross. Head. Yeah, pretty much. And then he throws the other two kids out the window. It's like, it's like, hey, two children just flew out the window and landed on the street. What the hell's going on? So anyway, we cut to the uh, 28th precinct where uh, someone's introducing Arthur Stacy to, uh, I don't know, detectives uh, Kurt Russell from, from uh, fucking Tombstone and uh, Danny Glover. And... He's basically like, all right, here, you know, we're going to find out about the man responsible for why, why you know the man responsible for my brother's death was never brought to justice. His name is Spider-Man. So then we cut to a, a shot of looking up at uh, Ben Riley's taint while he's fighting the robots. And then uh, Peter comes back in because apparently he did not go to the hospital. He, they're just continuing to fight. They have that one uh, 
panel where I swear this is reprinted like constantly in the in the one of those recap pages or whatever, where it's Ben Riley kicking at the robot master's stomach and then Peter kind of jumping into jumping into him as well. Uh, so anyway, Strom hits him with some gas. This will come in handy later. Back at the Daily Bugle, uh, J. Joe Jameson's talking about uh, the fact that there, the, apparently there's an emergency board meeting and a, a party at the same exact time, and everybody's like, oh, I don't know what's going on. Well, we see that there are some workers dealing with the pumpkins, and inside of the pumpkins, at least one of them, there is a bomb, which he activates with a switch. No the one seems to notice this. reporters. <laughs> no, no one's paying any attention to this. Uh, we cut back to the fight, which is somehow still going on for like three issues now, uh, where Ben Riley is uh, you know fighting against the robot master, or whatever robot master swinging at him. He's finally he's finally getting an advantage. He's ripping off parts of the suit as he goes until finally uh, uh, Strom has been uh, desuited. Thankfully, he still has the part around his crotch because we didn't need to see that. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Peter's dealt with the rest of the drones at the same time, so the fight's over. Peter takes off just in the nick of time to not see who the reveal is, the mastermind is. Because uh, the mastermind reveals himself. He's like, why ask my underling? You know, because uh, he's asking Strom, what, what's the identity of your mysterious employer? He's shaking it. He'll kill us both. I can't do it. So, of course, the employer is there himself. And he goes, why ask my underling when you can go directly to the source? And he and Ben begin to fight each other which is actually hilarious because they have to somehow have this fight happen and not show the guy's face. So he just looks like the red skull because <laughs> he's just, because <laughs> he's just wearing a business suit and his face is just like a red blob of nothing. Apparently Ben went blind during this fight. Uh, he mentions that like there's something wrong with his spider sense. And then the fact that this figure is able to sneak up on him, but it's, it's hand waved the way of being the gas that he got hit with by a uh, robot master. So anyway, uh, this, uh, this mysterious figure then kills Strom for his, his failure and stupidity after taking out Ben Riley, rather easily, in fact. Uh, we cut back to uh, probably the most disgusting scene ever in comics history. If you're a Spider Girl fan, yeah, which is uh, oh. Mary, Mary Jane like officially miscarrying her baby, waking up finding out that the baby's dead. Uh, you know, you cut to Allison Mongrain who wheels out something. Now that we know that that isn't the baby, what the hell is that? And why is the mysterious figure going along with this? But anyway, so uh, she rolls out for her cats. <sighs> anyway, uh, so anyway, she rolls out the mysterious employers there. He's, he gives her a sizable bonus and uh, travel expenses to Europe for for her role in this. And she and he she says uh, goodbye, sir. He says you needn't be so formal in the future, Allison. You may feel free to use my real name. It's Norman, Norman Osborne. And then he flicks the lighter, and you can see. In the darkness, a face of a very grotesque, ape-like man with giant hands and strange hair. Yeah, Steve Scrooge's a bad artist. But yeah, it's Norman Osborn. Uh, holy smokes, he is revealed to be the mastermind behind the Clone Saga, number 17 or whichever number we're on. No, no, oh. that weakling was destroyed in the fire! The fire <laughs> that created me! His equipment been... was no longer meant for him! <laughs> don't apologize i never do it should have been bagley out am i it's great when zach is doing a loud impression in the other room and he didn't unmute his mic so i'm the only one who hears it <laughs> the only one true goblin the green goblin oh that's a pretty point <laughs> homeless homeless god oh wait oh wait we're not doing that
<laughs> oh god, that scene where he's pinned underneath the statue and he keeps going back and forth between his goblin voice and his Norman voice. He's like, awesome. Oh, god, it's wearing off. Must <laughs> can't. Oh, so tired. Speaking of childhood memories. <laughs> How did All I know right. back in the 90s show? Yeah, that's it. That's the end of the issue. Uh, to be concluded in Spider-Man number 75. Oh, nice, nice wrong title there, guys. It was actually called Peter Parker Spider-Man 75, which is a pretty big spoiler. Good going. By the way, did y'all notice that they changed the trade dress of every single chapter of this? Like the the uh, every one of the titles has been rele- has been has got new lettering and stuff like that. I'm, I'm, I'm and, and it's all really crappy because they 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 turned it all to really generic looking stuff. Yeah, because like we had the spiky logo for every one of these titles until they came up with these. I know that the uh, spectacular trade dress is what they ultimately end up using in um, the spectacular Spider-Man cartoon. It's probably the least offensive one of the bunch, but like the rest of them are just kind of hot garbage. The, the thing that strikes me as odd about that is they kind of jumped the gun a month early on that. You know, like yeah, like like I would have expected them to do that like next month, right? Uh-huh. Like the fact that they called it Peter Parker Spider Man gives away the ending. No, trust me, we'll get to that in a minute because I'm gonna I'm gonna read the bullpen bulletins from this from this from this. Well, issue. I mean, it, it it could be people guessing that maybe Ben Riley retakes the name Peter Parker because that was like one theory and one idea that was going uh, around editorial well, at the time. Except there was also that house ad that we saw in the pre in Spider-Man 74 that says the return of the one true Spider-Man that had that. But what you have to understand. Okay. Fair <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's, let's start with uh, Josh. I thought that the art was a good step up this issue. Um, From what Ringo? Say what? From Mike Raringo? Yes. I'm sorry. Uh, hold on. Let me take off my glasses. What did you just say? <laughs> um, That's a lie. I, I thought, knew you don't wear glasses. I thought that the mo- I thought that the mooding stuff was like really good. Like as as heartbreaking and as like you know horrible as like Mary Jane miscarrying is. Like I feel like the art really enhanced to the mood and the emotions. Even when there's like minimal dialogue, you really feel the emotion from the scene and. That Norman Osborn reveal, the way that it was framed, you know, with the panels and the full, you know, head at the end, that was, I feel like that's pretty epic. So it it raises points there. Now, the rest of the art in the book is usually horrible, but it it raises some points for how it did the Mary Jane miscarriage scene and the Norman Osborn reveal scene. Like earlier in the book, where like Norman Osborn is there and he's still a shadowy figure, yet he isn't in the shadows. But like for some reason, like his head is, like, obscured, like, it's Austin Powers junk at the beginning of the Spy Who Shagged Me, like, that was really weird, and Ben Riley, like, has is very heavily influenced by Seaward Trainer, because both him and you, but I saw you die, what are you doing here, <laughs> you? <laughs> so, yeah, um, that Mary Jane miscarriage scene is heartbreaking as as somebody who wants these characters to have good things happen to them and who wants peter and mary jane to have a baby i don't like that scene but as somebody who appreciates like how a comic can really really get you in the feels and who who has seen comics try to be emotional and just fall flat like it's uh 
I can appreciate that scene from like a writing and art standpoint, composition wise. Um, that being said, everyone at that hospital is really creepy, and I will give Mary mm-hmm. Jane a pass for not realizing it because she's so wrapped up in like giving birth that like she can't like notice, you know, the Kangen Kodos like cackling that everybody is doing to the point where like. <laughs> Every, everybody like leaves her. <laughs> Don't worry, you'll give birth to your baby in death. <laughs> it's like that hospital where Aunt May. For went God's sake, give me an epidural. <laughs> it's like it's like that hospital where Aunt May was taken to visit Peter and everyone. There was a villain from the beginning of season two of the nineties show. <laughs> um, we do have to talk about like, and I, and I guess we're going to somewhat is. Do you feel that having the basically the back door for me to be alive, do you feel that that was a coward's move, that that was like, you know, like that, that, that they should have just definitively had it been a miscarriage uh, and like to kind of string people along that she might be alive, which actually I do like that touch, too, because it gives fans kind of like something to not only hold on to, but it, it, it does kind of spookily set up, you know, the whole Alison Mongrane baby May thing. But. I do question if that's a coward's move and if they should have just definitively ended it right then and there. What they did afterwards, as I alluded to, with like, oh, my, this crib that I've been mysteriously talking to, it's just my cat that was playing with the rattle in the crib for some reason. I forgot about that. I, I tend to think that they would have brought back Baby May at some point if they had decided to do the whole stupid re- reboot with Aunt May. I was reading those live, and I was, like, so disappointed. Like, Alison Mongrain shows up, May is alive! I remember. And then, like, Peter, like, shows up, opens the door, and it's, like, little bitty Aunt May, like, oh, you horrible creature, you! And I'm like, for real? I remember. Is, 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 is well. this <laughs> You know, to, to get a little ahead of myself, but... Alright. So, what was your grade again? <sighs> it's a low B. Um, the emotions, you know, like raise this up really well with the letter grade, but that, but the fugly art for 80% of the book, you know, keeps, (laughs) keeps it from being, keeps it from being a, like, I'm serious. Like when I say, I thought that the art was better. I really like that Osborne scene. And I really like the art in the miscarriage scene. Just the art with like Ben Riley fighting Norman Osborne, like who's a shadowy figure in freaking broad daylight. Like, like we still can't see his face. Like. Is he wearing the tech from the Grayson, you know, like, uh, series? Like, do you remember, Donna, uh, for, for, for those who don't read DC Comics, like... Well, the Grayson, first issue of uh, New 52 Batman, where, like, Dick Grayson was, like, the Joker for some reason. Yeah, like, there's this, like, face tech that, like, people in, like, Dick Grayson's, like, spy agency had, where, like, you can, like, basically wear it, and, like, nobody will, like, be able to clearly see your face, but they can see your body. It's, it, it, it's some weird psychic mind block bs <laughs> but, but 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 barbara gordon was able to see through it because uh because uh, guess how she recognized dick grayson's butt as all thirsty people do <laughs> I, I, i'm done <laughs> sorry okay uh let's do donovan uh i agree with josh in that like i don't think steve gross is a bad artist but i think that he has a very 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 distinct style that that kind of comes and goes in terms of whether i enjoy it or not like i agree that like there's some creepy looking people here and i think that like it's either ugly or kind of fits the mood um i don't think it's a better artist than mark Ring- mike ringo but like because like the way he draws on Anna and stuff, that's like bug-eyed, halfway. I don't know, like like like, like kind of American anime esque You know, the, the anatomy is very kind of all over the place. 
you know, I, I think I think like one of the cops looks just like Joe Robertson, and Joe Robertson is in this comic book. So I don't I don't think that like it's 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 too great, but at the same time, I wouldn't say that like he, he just can't draw. I, I'm not gonna pull that trigger because I think that I think that like there are effective panels in this in this issue. Um, and I've seen the panel where the very the very first panel of Anna and and Mary Jane and the reveal of Norman Osborn. And I remember thinking like when I first saw that camp the panel. That's a really creepy looking Norman Osborn. I think that's effective. A couple points. Like, like I uh, have a major problem with Peter saying, "You'll never." He's right, Ben. You'll never survive without my help. As much as I want to leave, I'm staying. No, Mary Jane's in labor, and he's got the notification that that, that there's something wrong. Like, really? I, I that's just that's just for like filler action. I don't buy that for an instant. And I'm not one of those guys who like you know. You know, lives and dies off of like the Peter Mary Jane ship exactly. Like, I'm not one of those guys who like tries to make an argument every time Spider Man is in a conversation about like their relationship. But I feel that like that's just really wrong. That like, as much as I want to leave, I'm saying, yeah, right. No, no, no. Ben will be fine. He's he's had worse odds than this. Um, and he can feel bad about it. But like, I feel that like that's just what does Peter contribute to this besides foot jobbing the head of a black kid and like throwing kids off of the windows? Like, it's just weird action sequences that like we don't really care about. So that's a that's a con against this issue. I I I didn't buy that for for an instant. Peter could have um, left then and there and still not gotten to the hospital in time. Possibly the, the panel where like a mysterious person who is Norman Osborn is like dropping a cigar, where he says exactly his plan. That, that looked like Mjolnir for for a minute there because he drops it on some sort of like rectangular I, thing. I'm glad I'm not the only one who thought that because when I first saw it, I'm like, wait, I, I did like a double take for half a second because yeah, it does. Because the cigar yeah. that he's smoking looks like it doesn't even look like a cigar anyway. Because it's the wrapping is way too like there there are too many turns around, so it kind of yeah. looks like either like a really badly rolled blunt or like it does it looks like the handle of Milner. You're right. What else? Um, <laughs> yeah, th- th- I, I, more and more as we're going through this, I, I see the, I see the, the the uselessness of this being a multi-parter because it's just kind of the same story of like you know them fighting. Strom for some reason, um, like the re- the revelation of Seaward Trainer seeing that it's Norman Osborn, and then Ben seeing as Norman Osborn, and then it be revealing to the readers that it's Norman Osborn. That could be done in two two comics, I think, at most. Um, <laughs> Why is Norman Osborn introducing himself when Allison Mongrain's boat is already like half a mile away? He's like, "You can call me Nor." She's gone. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that like yeah, Mary Jane's miscarriage sequence. Now, now I've known pretty much all my Spider-Man fandom life about this story and what happens and what happens to the baby and all that kind of stuff. Reading it now, it's with the, the black kind of bordering on the panels and stuff, and like, why is it my baby crying? He's saying, "I'm so sorry." I was like, "Since past, this is the most bastardly thing I've I've seen in comic books." Norman Osborn sucks. <laughs> like, what an asshole! <laughs> that is awful. That is. Awful, and no matter what we say of this of this like storyline, whether it's long or the art's bad or whatever, that was like 100% effect. And when you combine that scene with the revelation of Norman Osborn, I'm thinking, oh man, this is a terrific lead into to 75, and everything else is kind of unforgettable. Like, like as, as stupid and weird as the fight is, um, that really does, I think, not only save the issue but kind of make the issue. On top on top of which, I, I'm a lot more sympathetic to to weird artwork um i don't you know steve Schultz is not my favorite artwork but, but i think i appreciate that he has a design it's kind of like um i forget the artwork artists in like the arsenal era of 
Teen Titans, but like or the new Titans, but looks like Ugh. Roy Mayers or something like that. The, the, the one after Tom Grumman. The one after Tom Grumman. And this is this is after Dick left the book. Where we're like it was like the the Kyle Rayner impulse Arsenal team. Okay, so, so not the guy who do, who did that rape scene. No, not that artist, but like the one after that was it's a lot more anime esque. But like, um, no, I, I thought that this was ultimately an effective story. So I think it's not perfect; it has its problems. But I think ultimately, what it does do well is is I think kind of historic. Uh, so I'm going to give it a B, mainly because of the reveal of Norman Osborn and because of the Mary Jane scene. Greg, I've been sitting here throughout this entire recap, just staring the last with my epic. Book volume six, just staring at the last two pages because I, I out of it, and this is historically, whenever I've read this issue, it's always the last two pages that have captivated me the most. I don't really like the art in this issue, but I just look at this. I mean, and I agree with Don. There's a lot of emotion in these two pages. These are the best on pages and the thing there. But I imagine what if this was the thumb? These were the thumbnails, and Mark Bagley drew these last two pages. Just imagine that as well. That would have been terrific. And as for the issue itself, I mean, like I said, it's mo- like we've all said, it's mostly a filler robot fight with Mendelstrom. Who really cares about that? But the ex- but that excitement I felt back then came back while reading this issue then and today because the reveal of Norman Osborn the the emotional fate of what happened with Peter and Mary Jane's baby and I do think when this was written and drawn baby May was definitely still alive I mean it, it's all just come back to me but Gaunt Gaunt who cares about Mendelstrom I was just thinking earlier who should this have been instead of Mendelstrom with the concern where this was all going and who the mastermind really was and I was thinking if Norman Osborn's really wanted to stick the knife into Peter as well and make this Peter's night in hell on Earth. I mean, I think Gaunt should have been Doc Ock. You know, Web of Death, he finds Doc Ock, helps revive him for this big plan here, and he doesn't try to kill Doc Ock again. Maybe Doc Ock just wanders off after the big fight, but imagine if Doc Ock was was doing all everything here that we saw Mendelstrom doing, but better, and then we get the Norman Osborn reveal as well. Imagine that. That would be better, except for the part where Doc Ock would suddenly be downgraded to being Osborn's lackey. That would be weird. Fair enough. You've seen point. that before, though, right? Like a, like a number of times. But I guess later on after this. Uh, well, yeah, but I'm yeah, saying it's, like, it's later on because that we saw in the late 90s, though. Mm. Right. White suit Doc Ock. Because you don't see the Green Goblin and... Um, and uh, Dr. Octopus together in a story until the Mark Millar run. And even then, like, Dr. Octopus is, like, coked out of his brain. Like, so... So then we have to wait till Superior till we ever get it. Yeah, like, and... And I remember keeping track of that. Like, when I was, like, reading the Mark Millar run, I was, like, accessing Bertoni memories. This is the first time these two have ever met. And he's off his tits. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, kill the Norman Osborn. And that was when he looked like... He looks horrible because they were trying to make him look like the movie. I mean, uh, I mean, there are ways you could have written it without Ock coming off like a lackey. What do you mean? What you mean, Doc Ock with wearing dreads for reasons? Uh, minor spoilers for the video game, but like there is a Doctor Oct- there is a the Doctor Otto Octavius Norman Osborn rivalry in the, in the PS4 game. I was wondering how long it was going to take for I to the PS4 game. <laughs> Greg and I are like are saying here in the corner like that N64 Spider-Man game from 20 years ago. Am I right, my fellas? Well, that's, that's still a classic. I will never talk about that. That's a, that, that's a that's a great game. What are you talking about? <laughs> it has it has not aged well at all. I, I still kind of want to play it. 
<laughs> you, you, you do have the final boss as a uh, carnage. Uh, one thing I want to elaborate on with the Red Dawn's point about Norman. Yeah. One thing I want to elaborate on with Don's point is the whole uh, Norman uh, miscarrying May thing. It's it bothers me for years that when people bring up like all the horrible things the Green Goblin's done, they're like, and he killed Gwen Stacy. It's like, yeah, and he made Peter Parker miscarry his kid. That's like that's far worse than killing Gwen Stacy. Yeah. But like yes. everyone yes, always mentions thousand. killing Gwen. Yes. And even Dan Slott, when he was doing, like, press for Superior, I remember an interview where he's like, that's right, Doc Ock has topped the Green Goblin. I mean, the Green Goblin, you know, killed Spider-Man's girlfriend. But Doc Ock, you know, killed Spider-Man and took over his body. That's far worse. And I'm like, no, any parents will tell you that losing their child is, like, the worst thing ever. But, like, everyone ignores that. He even tops Black Manon because, like, like, I think he killed – Baby May, right out of right out of being born, whereas like you know, at least Aquaman's son was a, a baby at the time, or at least alive at the time. I mean, Mar- I mean, Mar- Marvel wants to sweep this whole thing under the rug. I mean, they barely ever mention it. I remember what a huge deal it was when Matt Gargan mentioned it during Marvel Knight Spider Man. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we had to like look for references. It's like, oh wow, like they actually reference ba- a Baby May reference was even rarer than a Clone Saga reference. Last time I remember Baby Megan reference was in Paul Jenkins' story where Peter was like, where Peter was off his tits and coke and like uh, kidnapped by Norman Osborn. Like he had that like fever dream of being buried alive. That's the last time. I, that was like in 2000, 2001. That's the last time I remember it being referenced. No, it happened, and, um, it happened in ahead. Mark Millar's run in Marvel Knights. And in, in the Pulse um, series that like Bagley and Bendis did, there's like a scene where Jessica Jones is my baby. I think the Green Goblin made me miscarry my baby. There's like a close up on Spider Man's face, like looking very horrified when that happened. Here we happens. go again. <laughs> they don't elaborate on it, but I remember the internet being like, "It's a Baby May reference." I think. Well, this is definitely the time to talk about like the whole baby pregnancy because I don't know if we. I don't know if I was even on the episode. Where, where, I, I, I hijacked your point, but did like Gerard and everyone else go yet? I'm sorry. I still, I still haven't even quite finished. But I mean, like I said, it brought back the. I was saying before this brought back all the excitement and Nor- and I remember even though I just kind of guessed it back then it could be Norman the reveal it kind of blew my mind at the time I mean I know there's all this talk and we'll t- probably discuss this later about how Doc the Doc got sidelined because Norman came back and I don't really think so I think Doc Doc had been getting sidelined for a very long time you had the Jackal you had Venom you had the Hobgoblin but I, I just thought it was insane that they brought this guy back in but in a good way i was really looking forward to the next issue and we'll talk about that eventually and i at this point i just couldn't wait to see what happened next so i'm gonna so maybe i'm dragging childhood memories into this but i'm giving this a b plus those last two pages really make it all right gerard i'll close it i i, I can't do it zach you know I can. <laughs> Here's the thing: as a, as a huge Spider Girl fan, this issue is like is like watching like your loved ones be murdered in front of you, kind of thing. Like, where I don't know. Uh, it, I'll start with something positive first. But, the, wait, wait, the, wait, but quick question: Did this happen in Spider Girl canon? Because it was during Gathering of yes. Five. <laughs> Which is why it's really weird that like Allison Mongrain and. Like the Spider Girl world, she's actually a nice person who grew to love May. Like, <laughs> and she apologizes. Yeah, base, basically, long story short, uh, in the is that a uh, Mongrain actually did make off with the baby. 
Zach, correct me if any of this is wrong. And then uh, Kane basically went, rescued her, brought her back. Yes. Uh, and then then Gathering of Five kind of happens immediately after that. So ba- basically they had their hands back on the baby before Gathering of Five happens. And then Mongrain uh, grew up to basically hate the Osborns. She tries to kill Normie later until May reveals that she is, in, the, in fact, Spider-Girl. And then they become friends afterwards. But anyway... Uh, yeah, so positives here. I will say the the Norman reveal. I'll, I'll give it a plus. Um, I don't like what's been done with Norman since the reboot. Like, I feel like that that little period between the Clone Saga and the reboot is the only time he's been interesting to me. I've just I've hated Norman being around. And to be perfectly honest, I know this is a controversial opinion. I would prefer he stayed dead. Having now seen what they ended up doing with him. This was done for, like, kind of a shock thing, but they did have a short-term plan for him, and it worked out. The problem is, long-term, I don't think it works all that well. Hmm. But that's a, that's an argument for another day, or possibly another podcast, wink, wink, wink. Uh, uh, Skros is, is... Oh, God, I, I don't even know where to start with this. So, Josh makes a good point about his choices of lighting and composition and things. And in his plus, I I love the way he draws Spider-Man. The problem with Skrose is that he doesn't know how to draw human beings' faces. They all look like horrible monstrosities. And when you're having a story that's supposed to convey, like, heavy amounts of emotion and, like, characters going through lots of, like, transitions in how they feel about things. Like, the scene where Mary Jane miscarries her baby would have been ten times more effective if she didn't look like an alien throughout half of it. You know what I mean? Have like, you seen a woman after giving labor, Gerard? After giving labor? <laughs> what? After going through labor. <laughs> what? I am try, not going try. to. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. No. I'm not going to. Yeah. That no. Um, I'm the only one in this room that's actually procreated. So, yeah. I've. That we know says of. Says you. Uh, <laughs> asterisk. Uh, we know at least one other person. Like, we're not going. We're not going into this right now. Um. <laughs> I had forgot the, the stupidity of this gaunt thing. The fact that it took three issues to resolve just irritates the hell out of me. <laughs> like, I'm reading back on it. I really hate this gaunt crap. I, I really do. Um, but yeah, nothing I can say about this issue will, will ever color, will ever be able to. to I, my opinion is too colored by Spider Girl, and I can't look at this issue and not just be disgusted by it. And think I know, of it as a Spider-Girl prequel, though, because well, well, it's in continuity with it. I mean, like, look, I understand that, like, unless you're, like, a nihilistic fuck like Greg, like, the whole point of, of characters and stories that you need some kind of conflict, but you want the characters to win the end, you, need, you, you don't want to go too far to one end or the other, because then you might, you, you know, you lose... There's something lost there, and I feel like they went to, like, infanticide might be one of those lines that you probably shouldn't cross, because that's a little too far. And I, I can't speak to this as eloquently as I know Tom DeFalco has in the past, 
But one of the reasons why the whole back door was added in the first place was basically at his insistence, because he was so disgusted by the fact that they were basically killing off a baby that he wanted a way to bring her back just in case. And I'm sure Zach will confirm this with Life of Riley, or we'll, we'll yes. argue against it, I don't know. But basically, that's the, that's the gist of it, is that Tom DeFalco looked at this as, what in the hell are you guys doing? And then came up with the idea for the back door, just in case. Cause, I think, like, my baby God. and the size of said, I am not going to be the writer that kills Spider-Man's baby. Yeah. I, I knew that that was a quote from somebody, yeah. I like to think the baby is still out there. Well, we had many years of a great comic book where she was. Um, but yeah, I don't know if this will be a first for this podcast or what, but I, I cannot give this assign this issue a grade and I will abstain. Wow, this is the first time that that's happened. I think that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Really. Mm-hmm. I'm of two minds because I, I like Greg, think that the last page is is exceptional but it was clumsily done in the previous 21 pages i i agree with gerard that i like steve gross's spider-man but i dislike everything else so i like the fight scenes i think the fight scene in retrospect goes on too long it's all to build towards this big giant reveal but literally you could read spider-man 75 and you wouldn't need to read the previous pages. Uh, but this one, uh, to me, Steve Scarrow should have debuted a following month. Mark Bagley should have been on three yeah. more months and done and drew this book. It would have been infinitely better. And um, I just... So it's getting a C-plus from me. The, like I say, the rest of the st- storyline is just kind of there. Um, there isn't cute little things like like you see in the first two Todd DeZago written issues. And so as a result, I just can't get too far behind it. So I am going to read the last bit of um, part 32 of Revelations. And I'm also going to reference a little bit of uh, one of the, the one of the ones afterwards. So, OK, Glenn's going to talk about Steve Skaros uh, being brought on. So Steve Skaros was brought on to Amazing Spider-Man at the behest of Bob Harris. Skaros had previously been a regular penciler on X-Man, but expressed that Harris is great. <laughs> It's great. The way, the, way you, the way you said that is if it was like a this X Man. <laughs> it's X Man, Zach. Get it right. It, it, it's the Jackal Man. Remember? Uh, 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 <laughs> the one that kills Jackal's family. Uh, anyway, see episode three. It's, it's been a weird nine years. <laughs> it, it has. So uh, Scross had previously been penciled on X Man. But expressed to Harris his great interest in Spider-Man and becoming a penciler on one of the core Spider-Man titles. By that point, Harris is already looking to rep- take longtime penciler Mark Bagley off of Spider-Man and have him work on other projects, such as the new Thunderbolt series. Harris believed that Scrooge's X-Men connection, quote-unquote, gave him a certain degree of, quote-unquote, heat in the industry, which would presumably help Spider-Man sales. Harris strongly encouraged Spider-Man editor Ralph Macchio to replace Bagley with Skaros. Skaros was certainly a talented artist, but in Glenn's opinion, considering how much affection he claimed to have had for Spider-Man and how interested he was in becoming a regular Spider-Man penciler, he showed very little commitment or dedication to Amazing Spider-Man once he got the gig. He lasted less than a year, seven and a half issues in all, not consecutively, and in a space of time, he took two quote-unquote sabbaticals from the book 
After penciling just three issues, ASMs 418, 419, and 420, another artist had to be brought in to pencil half of issue 421. After that, Skaros took a three-month leave of absence to work on storyboards for the first Matrix movie. So Joe Bennett filled in as penciler from issues 422 through 424. Skaros returned for issues 425 through 428, but then he took another sabbatical, one of which from which he never returned. With Mark Bagley having been a regular part of Spider-Man's adventures for so long and having been a part of the Clone Saga since the beginning, Glenn felt and still feels that it was a damn shame he didn't get to at least see the storyline through to the end. It would have been nice for him to get the chance to illustrate the ASM chapter of Revelations and to have been the artist who finally got to reveal the identity of the master villain on the last page of the issue. Mark, of course, went on to later pencil a highly successful and critically acclaimed run on Ultimate Spider-Man series, for which, at the time, he was still a regular artist, and Glenn was happy for him. He was always a pleasure to work with, and Glenn regrets that he didn't get to work with him more often. As for Steve Skaros, he did, did, did some covers for, me, for Glenn whenever he became the editor of X-Men, and he knows he did a story arc for Wolverine a while back, but he doesn't know what he's up to, the, where he is these days, or what he's up to. So there's a little bit about, you know, Arthur Stacy's daughter, Jill, being introduced in the storyline, and she was going to be established as a New York City police officer. John Romita Jr. penciled the pages that introduced her, but there was some rethinking of her character at the last minute, and the pages never saw print. Jill would not be introduced until after the Clone Saga was done and over with. The concept of her being cop, a cop was totally abandoned. That's a fun fact. All right. Tom DeFalco intended for this to be the last we've ever seen of Mendel Strom. He had another opinion on that, or Glenn had another opinion on that. His feeling was that he, he they bent over backwards and jumped through a number of continuity-related hoops just to bring Strom back and establish that he had been gone. Having brought him out of obscurity and comic book limbo after 30 years, why should they be so quick to kill him off again? Glenn felt like maybe they could get some mileage out of him in, out of him in future stories. With, with his connection to Osborne and his mastery of advanced robotics, maybe he could be an interesting addition to, to Spidey's rogues gallery. He expressed his opinions to Ralph before ASM 418 was completed, and he seemed to agree with it, with Glenn. But Glenn didn't want to interfere with Tom DeFalco, and he completely understood. Or Amakio didn't want to interfere with Tom DeFalco, which he completely understood. But as Ralph, Ralph and Glenn agreed that when the issue came out and Strom was apparently killed, <laughs> it's comics! Anyone can come back. Even Norman Osborn. Exactly, especially since we didn't actually see Strom get killed in the issue, nor did we ever see his dead body. Everything was implied, but nothing was confirmed. They should have done it like in the original Amazing Spider-Man Lee Dicko issue, where like Norman's about to kill him, and he's like, ah, ah, heart attack, heart attack, ah. <laughs> My weak heart. <laughs> ah, the sight of a gun has, has made me have a heart attack. <laughs> Martha, Martha Wayne's weak heart failed her. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because that's what? actually why did that's you actually say that why did you say that <laughs> Glenn, Glenn, Greenberg, Glenn Greenberg got to bring Strom back he even established a backstory for him when Glenn wrote Spider-Man Unlimited number 17 which is sort of a coda to the clone saga and uh, it's one of the series' last installments of the columns alright and then uh, the final part, which is about well, Glenn Greenberg, is that he vividly remembers all the little bits and story elements that Bob Harris absolutely insisted had to be in the Revelation storyline. Among them was the sequence where the porker baby is apparently delivered to Alison Monogram, and Norman Osborn tells her to make sure it's never seen again. 
Some of them on the editorial staff, including Glenn Greenberg, absolutely disagree with this sequence being included because it raised a question that shouldn't have been raised. They strongly felt that the baby storyline should have been a clean, clear, definitive ending and that there was no lingering doubts or mysteries about the baby's status. If the baby's dead, then let the baby's dead, then let's say the baby's dead and move on. Glenn remembers discussing this matter with Harris, and his response was, was that his way of ending the baby storyline gives hope to the readers who have been waiting for the birth of the baby. It lets them believe that the baby's still out there somewhere, alive, and maybe Peter will find her someday. It'll keep them coming back. Problem is, is that there was never going to be a resolution. In fact, Harris said he didn't want the baby referred to again once the clone saga was over. He even wanted it established that the first post-clone saga issue was six months that had elapsed since the end of Revelation, so they could just skip over Mary Jane and Peter's mourning period and show that they were uh, pretty much back to normal and Spider-Man was his old, wisecracking self again. Let me pause. As the only confirmed father in the room, (laughs) this is a pile of horseshit because I have watched my parents mourn for ten years the loss of their daughter. It's not something you just get over. Uh huh. Yeah. Cousin who had a miscarriage very late in the pregnancy. She still talks about the daughter she never had. So this mm-hmm. is absolutely a disgusting to you to dovetail off of Gerard's point and b completely unrealistic. Yep. Unpause. I, I got to agree with you on that one. Yeah. And and the whole – I don't know if Glenn Greenberg's remembering it wrong or if the writers just revolted and did it anyway because I do know that the baby was dealt with in, like, the first, like, year or so after the Clone Saga. There's, like, a scene yeah. where Mary There's Jane – There's also like, uh, Hot Coven Lives. Yeah. Uh, Peter and Mary Jane take down the nursery and, like uh, – and Mary Jane, like, has, like, a scene with Anna where she's, like, trying to be cool about it. But when Anna leaves, she cries. There's a scene of, like, Mary Jane, like, going to therapy about it. Like, I know Peter is, like – has, like, a trippy dream sequence and, like, a Luke Ross, J.M.D. Mateus issue where, like, the baby's mentioned pre-reboot. So the baby was, like, definitely mentioned. And, like, Mary Jane, like, saying to the therapist, maybe I wasn't worthy to be a mother – which uh, I, I, I liked that. It was just weird where, like, a few years afterwards, they not only stopped mentioning the baby, but, like, there was, like, moments where, like, it would have made sense to mention the baby, but they didn't. Like, I remember there was, like, some weird, like, New Avengers issue or something where, like, I think, like, Jessica Jones had just given birth and, like, Peter and Mary Jane are there and Mary Jane's like, I love babies. And Peter's like, oh, no, don't go getting any ideas now. Like, as if... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like they're like joke like they're like joking as if they've never like never talked about having a baby or as if she was like never pregnant um and i might be remembering the scene like a little bit differently than it was but i remember it was like played for laughs like peter's like don't get her started on babies am i right my fellow fellas i mean uh i'd love to have it for this to be kind of a talking point but i don't know if zach's done uh, I'm not quite done. I'll, I'll, uh, I thought you said unpaused. I thought we were. I'm uh, sorry. Unpaused. Harris want, wanted the Spider-Man books to move on away from the Clone Saga as quickly as possible, but he also wanted to play with readers' expectations. What a douche. 
When some of us editorial staffers privately discussed the situation, we agreed that Harris's approach was very unfair to the readers, deliberately dangling a plot thread in front of the readers and then just deliberately abandoning it with absolutely no intentions to ever resolve it just didn't seem like the right thing to do. And at that point, they knew better than to try to talk our editor-in-chief out of something he obviously felt so strongly about. But then again, if they hadn't done it Harris's way, there there probably never would have been a Spider-Man comic book series, Spider-Girl comic book series. As many of you already know, writer Tom DeFalco eventually picked up on the Harris-dictated plot thread and ran with it, creating an entire alternate reality in which the baby was eventually recovered alive and well and grew up to become a web-slinger in her own right. Spider-Girl has certainly earned the critical acclaim it's gotten. It's a fun, enjoyable comic, and it's managed to stick around for several years, escaping cancellation more than once. I guess something good can come out of something bad. I'm patting Gerard on the shoulder right now. Me too. <laughs> Son of a b- <laughs> Not you, John. <laughs> um, can, we, can we get into like... All right, have you, have you given your thoughts on the issue? You already gave your thoughts on the issue. Yeah, yeah. so let's let's kind of wrap... Let's kind of give some final thoughts. Let's go around the, around the horn and... and well, hold on, Zach. Did you sign a grade for this? It's a, it's a C+. plus. <laughs> he says resignedly. Yeah, I want to give it a higher grade because of the uh, because of the last page reveal, but otherwise it's just really a mediocre issue. But like, I kind of want to have a combo just a little bit about like sure. the whole BB plot because I don't remember if this was. Did you guys talk about this when, when the whole announcement that she was pregnant way back when? Was there a conversation about that? Because <laughs> six years ago on the podcast or however long it was. I mean, because like because like when one more day happened, we were all. Uh, unbelievably pissed but i think that like there's been enough time to like kind of reconsider how we think about the whole peter and mary jane having a kid and i'm not saying like you know oh that, that shouldn't happen or whatever but i think i'm less hostile to the idea that they have to have a family because that, that that kind of be, was the hill that so many spider fans were dying on and kind of seeing it play out now i mean this this decade the 90s as much as i defend it this really is like i think a major turning point of like whether you like like the Daniel O'Neill run or like the Lynn Ween run or not, like I mean, this is kind of like the era where Spider-Man was kind of broken, and this storyline or this this storyline kind of because they built up the baby for so long that not only is this kind of a bad ending, but like yeah, like, as Zach pointed out, to cynically try to wipe wipe around it, even though there were scant stories of them dealing with it, yeah, they're never they're never going to like you know play with that again, and I think that like to try to pretend it's not happened. Like like one more day, it, it does start a very bad trend of just pretending things had never happened uh, in Spider-Man's history, and I think the coincide was kind of the beginning of that because there was a whole ignoring the carry-on storylines and stuff like that, like you know with Anthony Cerbero and that kind of stuff. So I wonder if I, cause I, I understand how Gerard feels. Actually, I, I don't, but like I, I like to think I, I can imagine how he feels. But like in terms of the but overall Spider-Man. Uh, that's what I've been kind of trying to do, and it's like, but in terms of, like the whole larger Spider-Man arc, like I'm wondering if this, like you know, whether you agree with them bringing back Norman Osborn or not. I personally have never been bothered by that, but I, you know, I wasn't, you know, I, I, I didn't read Death to Gwen Stacy until well after the Clone Saga, so I, I, I just that never bothered me. But the baby thing, I think, is one of those things where the the, the sort of creative cowardness and not dealing with that properly. I mean, yes, they, they mention it here and there. But, like, that should be the more prevalent tragedy in Peter's life over when Stacey's death. And the fact that, like, yes. that's, that's not been seen as sexier as, as, as ASM 2021. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at this now. It, it does bother me in the long run about how they keep on trying to market Spider-Man as a specific character. 
after they give them these such dark storylines and then run from it. Does it? Does anybody have any thoughts on that? It's you can't keep on talking about the miscarriage because then it brings up the fact that Spider Man's the father, which is why they were trying to do the miscarriage in the first place. Like you have to like keep him de aged, so it's like that's why like they'll mention the death of Gwen Stacy, but not this. And should Peter and Mary Jane be parents? That's like I think it would be great. I think that if you pull that trigger, you have to go through with it because like. Ha- had the yes. pregnancy never been announced, it would be different. But like, when you have kids, it create it creates problems on like a regular basis. And I'm not saying that there's no solutions to problems, but like Frank Franklin Richards has been like um, basically about to start puberty for the last like 20 years. Like he's been like you know between nine and like 12 years old since like the the early 90s. It's uh. So it does eventually, like, you know, make it harder to do a long running narrative because it's like, why isn't this kid growing up? But then, like, if the kid is growing up, then, like, you know, why, like, how old do we want the parents to be? Um, And I'm not saying that there's no solution to that, but, you know, like that that is one of the downside to having kids. But when you have Mary Jane say face a tiger, you hit the jackpot again, we're going to have the baby. You have to follow through with that. You, you, you yeah, have that, to. That, that's the key problem for me for here. Like, whether or not Peter and Mary Jane should have kids is, like, a different argument. I think the problem here is that they started the process of it and then walked it back. And, like, that's where it gets weird because it's like, okay, I get, the reason this isn't the focal tragedy in Peter's life is the fact that it was ba- it basically has barely been mentioned since. Like, whereas the death of Gwen Stacy is mentioned constantly, like, I mean, we made it, we make a joke out of it, like, you know, like, a can of corn falls off a top shelf, he's like, oh no, just like Gwen, you know, like, because he'll bring it up just, like, out of context for, like, nothing, and then, like, oh my god, it's just like Gwen, where, like, no, like, oh. the, the biggest pro- tragedy of his life is his baby, but you're not allowed to mention that, so therefore it never became as big. Oh, so and of that. course it didn't, and also, let's not, let's, let's not be let's not be foolish here. The re the, the fact that the writers are in an age group where they grew up with Gwen Stacy and saw her die is significant. Cause that's why the fact that they kind of like, I don't know if this is the right word for it, but I'm going to go for it anyway. The fact that they fetishize Gwen Stacy's character to such an extent has like greatly improved her profile beyond reason. Like Gwen Stacy was not that great of a character when she was around, but you wouldn't know that because we basically deified her to this point. Like, whereas I feel like when people like young, a little younger than I am, start writing comics more regularly and chase these old farts out of there, then you're going to start to see like '90s nostalgia for better or worse, probably worse. But like, then we'll start <laughs> to see things like the fa- like you know, them losing their child will probably become a more significant factor. It's just, it's just I think it's the age group of the writers right now that's probably. I think nineties nostalgia has already played into it because we have Eddie Brock as Venom again. The the clone saga has been referenced constantly in the last ten years. Peter and Mary Jane are back for better or worse. Like, I think that that's been creepy in there. I I think that like when you bring up the age group of the creators and the fetishization of Gwen Stacy, I mean I see that a lot now. Um, again, I, I, I am a Peter and Mary Jane guy, but I see a lot of people slit their wrists over that relationship, and it's, and it's, and it's kind of weird. Not not in terms of like you know the um, creators exactly, because we're kind of not there yet. But like in terms of online discussion, it can get pretty volatile. 
and, and, and it's one of those things where like stories like these kind of you know have impressions on people like, like this led to spider girl that had a very strong impression on many of us on the, on the podcast uh i mean this this was one of the stories that got me into spider-man so you, you kind of wonder what they're thinking because they're always trying to market it towards you know new fans and then old fans it's that kind of balance and if they do even bring in new fans there's a there's not really a sense of responsibility towards how is it catering towards them or sort of carrying them into new things so like when you kind of forget things that happened that you told them was important that tends to be i, I think that's really irresponsible as a purveyor of a long-running character yeah but these these guys don't work for the character anymore and also let's be, also let's be honest the death of Gwen Stacy was a huge deal because that sort of thing never happened when that book came out. That never yeah. happened. Whereas this is the second to last chapter and an overly long, overly complicated crossover which which was not well received at the time. Okay, yeah, no, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to disagree with you there, because how many heroes or people that we see in comics have lost children like that? Sue? No, no, I, I, no, I agree with you about that. I'm just saying, though, that's Though that <laughs> they, they weirdly undid the Fantastic Four miscarriage, like years well, yeah, because they did, yeah, because they did the whole weird thing where, like, yeah, I, I'm still not even sure how that happened, but like, I if know I, that, like, if I, I think, I think it was implied that the remaining bits of Franklin's power rebirthed the child in Sue, but it was weird because it was like years later. Like, yeah, because it was like the tail end of, of uh, what's his name, uh, Carlos Pacheco's run, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, and then, like, th- th- there was a similar thing with this with Batman for a while, where, like, except, like, the, the tease, except, like, the tease that, like, the baby was still out there was a lot more, like, uh, uh, over, like, instead of, like, Alison Mongren going on a boat with a package, like, you actually see that the baby's still out there, but Batman and Talia get, like, kind of married and she's pregnant but like she doesn't like the way that batman's acting when like he's working with her father father. yeah like yeah like the the, the thing that she was wanting him to do this whole time so she like fakes a miscarriage and then like she does it so i i think that batman i don't even remember what her motivation was It, it was really weird so like batman's like well baby's dead no reason for me to stick around anymore see you later Roz and talia and then, like, you see, like, nine months later, like, the baby's dropped off at an orphanage with, like, a locket that from, like, the beginning of the story. And it was, like, never mentioned again in the books for years. And, like, Denny O'Neill would say, oh, that story's out of continuity. Then Grant Morrison, like, brought him back um, and, like, made him into Damien. And uh, and then, like, they retconned it that actually Talia raped Batman, which is not what happened at all. I've read the reason why that he went to back to Gotham City was because Talia told him to. It, but it wasn't I'm that, like, to... he, he, like, hit it and quit it. Yeah, but he, he, but it, it was weird that, yeah, she did tell him to, but, like, it, I don't know, the whole thing was so weird. And it's like, I'm sorry, like, if your wife, like, tells you, like, I need you to leave me after this miscarriage, you say, no, I am, I am going to, like, be there for you. This is a marriage, even if it's not legal. I think we are getting off topic, though, but I, but I, I, I feel that, like, 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 they, they, in the 90s, it was clear. I, think, I remember Peter Parker consistently being said he's 25 years old, it, and like you know, people wrote diff- people different back then. Is there any? I, I kind of want to be honest with this. Do we feel like Peter and Mary Jane were written to be a little older than they should have been, or were they like had they matured, you know, in order? It, it, it's weird because if I remember correctly, 
Peter Parker 76, when they start going back to school, like, that's when they immediately started trying to young them up a little bit. But yeah. the, the way I always caught it was that, like, they got married, like, two years before the Clone Saga kind of thing. So I always kind of imagine them being roughly in their mid-20s, given, like, that Peter was in graduate school in, like, the 80s and stuff, and then, like... Yeah, mid-20s always seemed about right to me for this time period. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I, I never questioned that. I, I, mean, I think right now Peter Parker is, like, 30 years old. I think the reason why they seem older than they are is that because, like, all this shit that they've gone... Like, it's not like they're talking about, you know, like, taking, you know, like, their uh, whatever medication that old people need to take that I lost the reference for that was on the tip of my tongue. Right, but, I you know... No. Wow, no. But, like, it's, it's just, like, they were constantly having, like, tragedy after tragedy and, like, having the weight of the world on their shoulders. So, like, that's why they didn't seem, like, saying. But I do remember, like, um, Flash and Peter, like, did say their age in the Luke Ross, J.M.D. Mateus run right after the Clone Saga. And I remember someone wrote in, like, wait a second, you know, like, I thought that they were in their, like, 30s or 40s. And, like, Marvel, like, printed that letter and wrote, oh, no, 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 they're not in their 30s or 40s. They won't be until at least the year. And then, like, they gave, like, a year, like, you know, like, to, to <laughs> it would be funny to, like, go back and look at that letter column to see if it's, like, 2015 or something like that. But, uh <laughs> You could, like, tell that, like, Marvel was like, no, 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 not their 30s and 40s, not their 30s and 40s. Like, just like when um, uh, Howard Stern, like, talked about Peter and Mary Jane getting divorced after one more day, like, Joe Casada like, immediately called into the Howard Stern show to say, it's not a divorce. It's uh, something, 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 because uh, they they didn't want people to think that Peter Parker was an old, divorced man. This makes me think of The Simpsons, where uh, in the seventh and eighth seasons, when Bill Oakley and Josh Weinstein were showrunners, and they were like in their like, they were getting older, and like, some of the writers were getting. Calm down, Josh. Like, like, like they, 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 they... I'm trying to think of a Steam Pam's reference. <laughs> I'm sorry, but like they, they're seriously saying, like you know, like Homer was supposed to be like 34, and they're like, that's ridiculous. So I think they aged him up to like 38, I believe. Um, maybe it was 36 and the age moved to 38 because they, they, they thought that like they were writing the character that they were used to age wise and they had only getting older and older and, and I know now he's like 40 years old but like they, they talked about having difficulty writing characters that kind of stayed in a fixed time and I think that like there's there's an element of that with, with Spider-Man because how long has Dom DeFalco been writing for Marvel at this point like 10 years so I think there is definitely like a sense of like you know I'm aging why can't these characters age too and again, I'm not fearing an older Peter Parker, but I reading the '90s stories. I do, I do think that like he's not he is written to be older than I think he actually is supposed to be. And I think I think that, that, that people who realize that had a bad reaction to it. Um, whether whether or not people mature in their mid twenties or not, like I know back then people like like friends, right? They're supposed to be in their twenties, and they're all like you know clearly not. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I, yeah, I, I think there, there, there's a, there's a complication. I think there's there's real inconsistencies that kind of led to this decision and it was a bad decision ultimately because i think it's just it's a little too much for a spider-man comic but i think that like it's not that like there was a, a switch flip like oh you should never have done that i think there is an instance of either they wrote them a certain way or the, you know they definitely lost track of like what story they're writing because i don't even know if they consider ben Wright to be a main character or if he's just completely expendable um but whatever it, it, it I, I do find this story interesting as very in quality as we found it to be tonight so, Greg, your final thoughts on this? Uh, 
I, th- I think I've already given them. I mean, but like I said, re- reading this all, it just brings back these memories. But I do agree that Peter and MJ, they definitely feel a little bit older than, than their 20s. And, like, and I agree with this. They've been through so much. Life has a way of aging you. I mean, it's not the age, it's the mileage. I mean, we've all heard that saying before. I mean, this is, I mean, these are people who've had venom come stay in their apartment and freak them out. <laughs> I got my first gray hairs at age 31. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know. I mean, considering all the stress they've been through and everything, and not not just supervillains. Yeah, this guy had an ulcer when he was still a teenager. I mean, I remember when people people saying that JMS wrote Peter too old, like he was in his mid-30s, and I'm thinking, well, Peter's been around the block. I don't think they, I don't have any problem with how Jameis oh, wrote no, Peter. I, I love the way Jameis wrote Peter and MJ and Aunt May for that matter. And, and how would you write someone to be in their mid twenties? Like, would you just have them like constantly be on Instagram and dabbing and stuff? Like, like, what would you do to like make somebody react seriously to a situation but not make them seem like they're in their thirties? The, the, here's the problem: people that are twenty five today is, are, are people that acted like teenagers back in the nineties. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, uh, we can't we, we, we can't look at it through the prism of being a 25 year old today, because when you're a 25 year old in, in, in the 80s and 90s, most of them already had the start of their careers. They had started families. I mean, I was 27 when I started my family. So I was around that age. So it's but like, you know, people that were are 21, 22, they're they're not always ready to do that today so um i just think it's a different time period and it's definitely it's definitely interesting to interesting topic of discussion i think that like um uh how peter was getting married when he was still in high school like 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 for instance like like we all agree that like in brand new day it was embarrassing how they tried to write them as young but i think again kind of going back to the ps4 game Peter's specifically twenty three in that game, and I think he's written like very well. They're not trying very hard to. Uh, he's actually written like an actual human being, and actually how Spider Man would act as a twenty three year old. Brand New Day was just yeah. editorial drivel that tried to put tried to like bring their own feelings and shit on the damn character. It was a masturbation uh, fantasy. I I hate to use the word pandering because, but like, it did feel like they were pandering to an audience that they were trying to like, that wasn't reading the books that they wanted to read the books. Like, Hey guys, look, it's Spider-Man and he's full of youth and and he's clubbing and and he's this and that. That's one of the reasons I laughed when, when Zach was singing the the praises of Spencer's run. Because I, I, I immediately compared it to, like, the reaction of when they brought back the quote-unquote classic Coke after new Coke failed. Because I'm like, I, I feel like a lot of people are praising this by comparison to what came before it. Even though they might have changed a few of the ingredients and you didn't notice. <laughs> that That's why Big Time was so well-received. Because that was, like, just such a big improvement after, like, Brand New Day. It was like, oh my gosh, this feels like Spider-Man again. And then, like... <laughs> and then after we settled into Slots Run Pro, I like, oh, okay, this isn't the best thing either, but like it's better than Brand New Day. And then like now Spencer's run, it's like one step above Big Time, which was one step above Brand New Day. Because like, 
Yep. Spencer's Run has stuff that's like that's like actually funny, not just stuff that like they want us to laugh at. It's just kind of insulting. <laughs> like, <laughs> I like it's Spider Trivia. Really land. In fairness, though, I haven't actually read it, so I'm not going to pass judgment. I, I'm, I'm not really qualified to do so. That's good. I like All right, host. Read. All right, host. What else? All right, Gerard. I'm going to let you finish. <laughs> finish what? Finish giving your thoughts. <laughs> he wants you to sign out of the show for us. So, so that can do whatever he, he, he's oh, just yeah, We're going to wrap things up. I appreciate you guys uh, being on the show. If you want to be a part of the program, it's 818 925 6631. That's 818 9 clone 1 if you want to leave a voicemail. And an email address is clonesagachronicles at gmail.com. So, with that, clone heads, we'll see you next time when we cover the fourth part of Revelation. Clone-